there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, we have a customer. Rotten Tomatoes Awards editor Jacqueline Coley joins Roger and Quentin as they unlock the secrets of Billy Wilder's The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Holmes and Watson take on a strange case of a beautiful woman whose husband has vanished, leading them on a journey of ballerinas, canaries, and even the Loch Ness Monster. Join the trio as they discuss Jacqueline's love for Wilder, Watson's role in the film, and what this movie meant for Billy Wilder's career and the wider scope of cinema. Next, we travel to the light at the edge of the world. Violent pirates execute a plan to force ships to run aground, pillaging their wrecks. A lone member of the lighthouse crew survives to fight their devious plot, Quentin, Jacqueline, and Roger discuss despicable but captivating villains, Jules Verne's original story, and lines you just shouldn't cross. Lastly, a band of thugs who have robbed a casino hide themselves in a villa owned by a wealthy industrialist and his family. This is Rene Cardona Jr.'s Hostages. Roger, Quentin, and Jacqueline talk about Bang for Your Buck, a war against the upper class, and discuss the original trailers on the Paragon Home videotape. I'm Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Thank you very much, Gala. And welcome back to the Video Archives podcast. Kill the Bakalov. I am Quentin Tarantino. And I am Roger Avery. Roger, this is a very special day in Video Archives podcast history, because today is the day we have our first guest like a customer come walking into the store almost yes right? exactly no that, that's exactly how we treat guests okay <laughs> they are they are uh, uh informed customers who have nothing else to do who come out and talk for three hours with us behind the counter and, yeah. this was like and a, they're not getting paid we are <laughs> and this was like a normal thing this was like a normal thing for us because yeah. we're there for like 12 hours or whatever however long our shift was no, 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 there, no, eight there, hours there will there would be there would be at video archives there would be like four three to four customers that 
came in pretty much Monday through fucking Friday, all right? And And hung out out for hours. And hung out for like an hour to 90 minutes to two hours. Yeah. Monday through Friday. Yeah, and you were expected to perform. Yeah, yeah. yeah huh? uh, for that, like, we would get into conversations, you know, discussions, arguments. Well, Sometimes no, no, they're just hanging out. We had customers the cool, who would come a, in and there's put the tapes cool, away. There's the cool housewife that would show up around like uh, twelve or one. Then there's the guy who's coming off of work who always would uh, drop by his tapes on the way home from work. So, so he, he comes by at three or four. And then there's just the people in the neighborhood that just came Guys by. like that Jim Carlo guy who would mm-hmm. show up and start putting tapes away as if he worked there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, that's my job, dude. <laughs> Did yeah. you guys ever have the bartender who definitely needs to watch something like after they get off the shift, but they'll be out too late. And so they come to you in like the early afternoon and they maybe got their like uniform on. Did y'all have those folks? Because I was that a, folks. We had an employee, I remember, yeah. uh, who every uh-huh. now and then like would run off to, what was that place? Right near was it Shakey's and have like a pitcher of beer? Oh no, English Dave. English Dave. Yeah, that's, that was well, it. Uh, he was yeah, my roommate. He was the my pub, roommate for a month. Where's yeah, the yeah. pub near here? Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess it's Shakey's. Uh, no, 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 no. That was Stephen. Okay, that was Stephen. Stephen. That, that's that right. was Lance's friend, Stephen. That worked for like for, he was like a guy from England who was a friend of Lance's who came over for the summer, so worked at the video store. For the summer to pay for his thing, <laughs> yeah. all right? And then he would just go and just have pictures of people. He, he, Mr. Pub Guy. Yeah. Right? yeah. So he goes, and he's the guy who knows everybody at the, all the bars that were in like yeah. a two block radius. There was no algorithm at the time. So we kind of had to know our customers. We had to know what they wanted and what they were looking for. And if you were, say, a bartender coming in. We haven't introduced Jacqueline yet. We have to know that. Well, that's not me. You should have done it by now. Didn't you? You're going on a diatribe, but I'm trying to be polite. And I don't care. I'm just going to jump in and be like, they'll figure out who the voice is. Quickly do introduction so I can commence my diatribe. Yes. (laughs) Our guest tonight is Jacqueline Coley, who is the awards editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Thank you. Say hello to the nice people, Jacqueline. I am so excited to be here. Very honored, too, to be a guest or customer. Yes, a customer. Yes, a customer. Quentin, he's not only an appreciator of film, but he's an appreciator of film criticism, which not every director, I think, enjoys and loves it to the degree that he does. Uh, uh, Understandably. (laughs) Understandably. Yes, very justified. Justified. Never mind the conflict of interest. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I'm not reviewing my movie. Yeah, he's not reviewing his. He's reviewing old classics. You know, even before the the new Beverly website, there were different pieces that I wrote for Film Comment and I yeah. was paid for. And you know. You've been writing reviews for as long as I've known you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so have you, actually. Yeah, I, yeah. I, can, I, mean, I can quote your reviews from the 80s. Oh, my God. <laughs> like Baby Boom. Baby Boom, that's the one. Oh, that's the one. That's oh, the one. Oh, Baby I want, Boom. I want to hear The film this. looks as if it was, the film print was soaked in piss. <laughs> Processed. Processed in piss. Processed in piss. <laughs> I, I, I feel a butt coming on here, maybe, though, right? Oh, no, there's no butt. No. There's no butt. You you There's hated no it. No. You hated every minute of it. <laughs> I'm not a big Baby Boom fan. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I was and, so want to hear And indeed, the print I saw had to have been like processed. In, it was like something was wrong. On His Majesty's Secret Service, the worst sound editing in the history of motion pictures. <laughs> hey, if nothing else, as an enjoyer of Lifetime movies and, and uh, cheesy romance novels, you have to give it up for that movie spawning an entire, probably billions worth of dollars of the city woman coming to the country town. And, and like there's six Netflix shows right now with that exact same concept. I do give Oh, I, does, I throw my arms in the air and I get Yeah, up. yeah. <laughs> he doesn't stand by any of those reviews yeah. anymore. Right? That's true. A part of part of my thing. In fact, I was kind of delighted. That your whole thing seems to be about like you know 
Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Fuck your thoughts <laughs> or yeah. whatever you're saying. That like, Critical consensus can be a joke. And there's, <laughs> and there's something to be said for that because for me, I go to see a movie and the screening itself can have an effect on it. Where I am in my life can have an effect on it. I can see it six months later and have a completely different experience to it. And what's been super delightful to me as a, as a film viewer, as I grow older, is that I'm realizing that, hey, Roger Avery in his 50s is a different Roger Avery than I was when I was in my 20s. Mm. I have a different perspective. I have different appreciations. Was I an angry young man? Is that what it was? Uh, a little Quentin? bit. A little bit. I, I was just like- A snotty young man. <laughs> hey, Roger, did you see The Kiss? You know, I saw that. That was a pretty good horror film. That is preposterous! <laughs> How dare you say such things? <laughs> Did you like Explorers? I hated it! <laughs> well, hey, listen. I did know, hate Explorers. But can I just say this, Roger? I think one of the reasons why you have softened in your film opinions and how much it grates on you when people have whatevers is partially because of, I think, the lady that's sitting right next to us right here. For and sure. I, and I find that everybody does because if you don't mature past that, because I was just as like that. Like, I would rage in internet forums. Like, I'm just glad that there was less, I would say, internet that was... Um, Internet was more disposable back then. Yeah, yeah. Because when I think about now, looking yeah. back on my opinions back then, yeah. I'm like, who let me the, have the, the, <laughs> the fact that the message boards are long gone. Yeah. That you I had no so... message boards. I only had Quentin. Yeah. <laughs> well, like that's so much better. With. I mean, he probably remembers. Braddock missing in action three. <laughs> Give me a fucking How break. dare you bring me to this that's... film? Oh, you're it can't hold a flickering birthday candle to missing in action to the beginning. And, and you know what? You're, you're absolutely right well, I, about uh, about Gala changing my like for example we went and saw this movie Konosuba okay it's like anime right it's like an anime film yeah it's an isekai based, an isekai um, thing based on a, a series a very popular series I had no exposure to it I go to see it it was a Fathom Events was that what it was yeah. Which mm -hmm. so it's like a kind of live projected thing which meant it was like it was only going to be that one screening. It was a two-night two night. It was like showing up for Rocky Horror or something. The fans of that show turned up. I hadn't had an experience, a movie experience with an audience in so long that was there to be there for the movie. And certainly Roger of... Uh, uh, olden day. Olden, oh, ye olden times uh -huh. would probably not have you know been open to it. But I went and saw this movie and I was like, that is why cinema was invented. Ooh, <laughs> was that yeah. film and the reaction? It was an incredible experience and an incredible movie that I don't know that I would appreciate if I wasn't a father. As entertaining as that episode of Psychology Today starring Roger Avery was. <laughs> <laughs> All this leads into the appreciation and lack of appreciation thereof when it was released. Our first movie that yes. we're talking about, which is Billy Wilder's The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. From 1970. Yes. Which, by the way, is in a beautiful uh, key video box. I love the key video boxes. So does Gala. They have that rainbow. Yeah. They have that rainbow cover. Beautiful and, rainbow cover. Well, they use this actually... Uh, uh, to a very good effect, that that Grady Hendrix wrote a really interesting book the last couple of years called uh, "My Best Friend's Exorcism," mm. and uh, and the cover of the book is done like a key video. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so you find it, it looks really cool. It looks like an old video box. Um, it's a good book. Anyway, even though Key Video was normally a 20th Century Fox division, this is a UA movie. Mm. So now I will read the back of the box. This is how we tell the story of the movie. It's just oh. we would just read the back of the box. Let me <laughs> dig. I <laughs> I'm dig. Explaining that to Jack. 
Billy Wilder brings his comic magic to the story of the most famous detective in history. That pipe smoking. <laughs> that pipe smoking. That's really funny. <laughs> Especially with the subtext in this movie. Smoking, that violin pipe, playing, smoking. mystery <laughs> solving. Okay, we go back. Okay. Billy Wilder brings his comic magic to the story of the most famous detective in history. That pipe smoking, cape draped enigma. Sherlock Holmes, in a humorous glimpse into his private life that will keep you guessing while it makes you laugh. After daring, delicately, to ask the question, were Holmes and Dr. Watson lovers? The private life of Sherlock Holmes plunges into a wild, wacky story that involves a Russian ballerina, the Loch Ness Monster, a haunted castle, a beautiful Belgian spy, Queen Victoria, and a top-secret naval experiment. It all comes out elementary, quote-unquote, in this delightful madcap romp through 19th-century England. Enjoy top-notch entertainment in a movie that is guaranteed with one laugh-packed scene after another. 1970, color, 125 minutes, recorded in VHS. Hi-fi. Giddy up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason I wanted to actually pick a film like uh, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes uh, to be on this episode was, it it was a twofold reason. One is because I knew Jackie was going to be one of the guests and her favorite director after me is Billy Wilder. Yay. (laughs) Okay, so you have a favorite, before you continue, do you have a favorite Billy Wilder film? Uh, The Apartment. And that's where I I was. uh, I could have answered that. Yes, he definitely could have. It's, uh, I just got the Italian print of it, like a huge Italian print of it that they're putting up in our house. And it shows Shirley MacLaine in that great sort of like uh, slip dress that she wears Mm -hmm. through it. And yeah, I love it. I love that film. Jack Lemmon doing spaghetti with a tennis racket is probably one of the best side gags <laughs> that I, I, it'll make me laugh every time. Number two, then. Number two for Billy. Well, oh, see, this is what's weird. It depends on what I'm in a mood. When I'm feeling schmaltz- Do you consider his scripts to be part of the Billy Wilder universe or does it have to be written and directed by Billy Wilder? I would say written and directed by him. I honestly, I would say The Lost Weekend. But sometimes it's Sabrina. Some days I'm feeling, you know what I mean? Oh, wow. Okay. She, yeah. So it can hop around. It, it can hop you, around. You could be in a witness in a witness for the prosecution mood. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Or, you know, it, it really just depends on, on what you're feeling. Because that was what I love about him as a director. Mm-hmm. He, more than any director I had seen up to that point, did not seem to be bound by genre as much as story. Mm-hmm. He just seemed like he fell in love with these various characters or saw himself or put himself in them. Mm-hmm. And whether it was a noir, whether it was a comedy, whether it was a rom-com, it didn't matter to him. And so that's what I really kind of loved about him. Do you think that there's a significant shift between the bracket years and then those years without like a, a single writer and then suddenly that stretch I. A. with I.A. <laughs> A diamond, like... Yeah, I think it was five years before this between his last film. And I do think it was probably him realizing that the stories that he wanted to tell were not going to be available for him within the studio system. Because that was the beginning of the shift that Quentin talks about between, Mm. you know, old Hollywood and new Hollywood. And I think for him at that time, just looking... He was already kind of, I wouldn't say slow, but he was not as prolific as you could have been at that time for like mm. churning out picture and churning out picture. And so I do think he- Okay, well, you have to you have to remember though, 
He's a writer. He's writing his own things. Yeah. You cannot just move from script to script to script because you always have to start with page one, which is a, a blank fucking page. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't. I could have done more things if I didn't have to always start from the <laughs> fucking beginning of the earth. All right. Every single solitary time. But, Absolutely. But, that, but that's the only thing that makes it worthwhile as far as I'm concerned. And then look what he comes back with. Something yeah. where he's doing an adaptation. So he wasn't even starting from a blank page with that one. Mm. I do think it was the writing at that point. He wanted to write and direct his own stories and the stories that he was interested in that time were not stuff that they wanted to get produced. Is it stories or is it characters? Even better said, yeah, characters, yeah. yeah. Well, but I, you know, but look, it's undeniable that his screenplays with Bracket are the better screenplays. But the Billy Wilder as a writer-director that everyone associates with Billy Wilder, it's the I.A. Diamond movies. Absolutely. Those are the 60s movies. Those are the late 50s, 60s movies that that create the Billy Wilder that we know today. Yes. The one thing I will say about Billy Wilder, too, and I'm glad that you picked this one on there is because we all know how Quentin feels about, you know, hey, look, um, at a certain point, all these directors fall off. But I do. And like, I usually use him as an example. You with, use him with as the front page and buddy, buddy. And I have right, a right to. You have a right to. However, there's still good late innings. Oh. And I love this late inning because hey, I don't. I you think, know, I've always appreciated uh, 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 Avanti. Yes, exactly. That's a that's a legit new Hollywood movie. At the time, though, how was that received within the people that were genuine to it? Did it feel like he was a poser? Because that's one thing I would wonder. Because I didn't, watching it, obviously you know that somebody writing mm-hmm. outside of their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. But I never felt like it was corny or... or no, I don't think position. it's corny at all. No, I don't even think it's writing outside of his wheelhouse. I actually feel he took advantage of a time to actually make a slightly sexier comedy than mm-hmm. they, he would have been allowed to have made four years or five years earlier. I could see him making the exact same movie in 68 or 69, mm. especially, especially with a lemon. But the idea, though, that it was allowed to have a naked scene. Yeah. It was allowed to have a sex scene. It was allowed to be genuinely... A soft pedal version of a risque, but risque nevertheless. Yeah. I mean, he, but I just love how many scenes did he master of not showing stuff? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like this one of the guy's greatest tricks is the things that he was able to delicately navigate within the, mm-hmm. within the code. So mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's interesting. I wanted to do Private Life with Sherlock Holmes on this episode. One, because I wanted to talk with Jacqueline about it because this is one of my favorite Billy Wilder movies. And I thought it would be an interesting discussion with Jacqueline. But the other thing about it, though, was I watched this film. During a year and a half where I watched, I tried to watch as many movies from 1970 that were commercially released in America as I possibly could. The year 1970, I have a whole hypothesis about how, as far as the old Hollywood versus new Hollywood, if if you take Mark Harris's word, okay, it more or less started in, in 67. And then this fight for dominance, this cinematic revolutionary war was fought during 68 and 69. And it was won in 1970. So all of a sudden, New Hollywood became the Hollywood. And Private Life of Sherlock Holmes falls into two categories if you're breaking down the categories of movies released uh, by Hollywood in 1970. One, it falls into a series of movies that were all made from an old Hollywood mindset. Mm. And now released in this new Hollywood world, and they're pretty much dead on arrival. So other movies like that would be uh, Blake Edwards' Darling Lily, which is surprisingly similar to this movie. George Stevens' Only Game in Town, William Wyler's uh, Liberation of L.B. Jones, Song of Norway, 
Jerry Lewis says, which way to the front? Yeah. I never, if I wasn't doing that 1970 thing, I never would have watched this movie because I'm not a really big Sherlock Holmes fan. Just the idea of a big budget Sherlock Holmes movie doesn't really draw me. Nothing about the cast drew me at all. Yeah, and if, at, if you, at all. And yeah. if you hadn't have chosen this film for this, I don't know that I would have ever yeah. uh, just on my own. And the only reason why it. I did is because I wanted to complete yeah, Wilder. Just had to become, the, yeah, I just wanted just to, to watch it. everything yeah. that, that Wilder had ever done. And that is literally when I found out that he even did that. But because I was being a purist, I sat down and watched it. And it blew me away. I think one of the reasons that I ended up loving it so much because it was such a surprise. It was such a surprise from what I was expecting to get. I saw probably like 125 movies, if not more. And so then making my top 30 or 40 was actually really interesting. Oddly enough, actually the most interesting movies were in the, the 30 category. They don't work all the way through, but they were interesting. Private Life of Sherlock Holmes made my top 10. But then when we were doing this show, I started remembering the film and I remembered, I, I didn't remember it. I liked it. I really liked the experience of it. I, I remembered elements in it. You know, I remember the Loch Ness Monsters in it. I remember the little guys. I remember the little submarine. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I forgot all the intricacies of the story. I definitely forgot the powerful ending. Yeah. Uh, I had forgotten it all. And I was like, was I just nuts? Was I, was it that good? I wanted to have an excuse to watch it again. And I wanted to watch it with some other people so they could actually, we could talk about it. So in that vein, Roger, you were brand new to it. What did you think of the film? Yeah. Okay. So I've never, ever been a, a Sherlock Holmes fan. Aficionado. I, an aficionado. I, I, I'm not an avid reader of Conan Doyle. And so you you picked this movie, but it was Billy Wilder. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, Billy Wilder, let's bring it. We never talked about it. Are you a Billy Wilder fan? I call myself a Sunset Boulevard fan. Okay, got it, got it, got it. And um, to me, it's, uh, I love a lot of his movies, but in particular, I I cherish that film. So the movie begins. Mm -hmm. And I think from the very first shot, when it's out of focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh uh-huh. I of the gold nameplate in that London uh, flat. It was yeah. the title treatment itself. Yeah. Just the entry into the movie. And as that shot racked focus and we realized that we were looking into uh, the brass plate, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah. the building there. And, we see the and you see all of London reflected. London yeah, reflected. Yeah. And then, Double-decker buses and then driving we begin by. <laughs> hearing Watson narrating the film. And I don't know. I can't explain it other than I immediately felt at home mm-hmm. and comfortable. Like this is exactly my style. Uh, and Quentin, you knew this instinctively. Yeah. You even said it as uh, as the film started. Like, oh, you. Ro- Roger very much loves the idea of reinvention yeah. of mm-hmm. iconic characters. And I could just as we were watching, it's like, oh, if Roger was hired to do a Sherlock Holmes story, this would be how he would get oh, into. I love this. Uh-huh. And and the whole thing about this is that it is done so lovingly and it's first done as writers it's a fantastic to be able to take the universe of conan doyle okay you've got to know that universe first of all and you have to know it and love it and and truly be able to immerse yourself into it in order to adapt it and then to realize it in such a vivid classic beautiful Mm -hmm. uh presentation in in a way that only a classic filmmaker can do it probably is 
as great an example of classic direction as you're ever going to find with the camera. Uh, every serving. shot is interesting, but, but but an entire world is encompassed in every single shot. Everything, yeah. every single shot and moment in this movie is yeah. done to service mm-hmm. Conan yes. Doyle and, and, and the world of Conan Doyle. And, and it's incredible to watch a director selflessly yeah. approach the material like that. But if a sight gag can be fitted comfortably inside that shot and not a lurching for a sight gag, yeah. an elegant sight gag can mm-hmm. be put, inserted in the shot, it is. I freaking loved this movie. And I even like told you at the end, I cried. Yeah. You know, I actually, beca- I mean, I'm a little bit of a softy. I have to let you, you know, I mean, now you know, yeah. <laughs> having watched a movie with me. Yeah. So how does well, it sit with you though? I'm real curious it, though. I actually like, I mean, I got back at like midnight or whatever. Yeah. And uh, at the middle, like at 3 a.m. I got up and I was angry. I was actually upset. And I was um, upset at the reception of the film. The, the basic idea of the, the movie was basically dismissed as... It's like yesterday's news. It was out of vogue at the time. Yeah. He wasn't doing the style that was hot in the moment. Yeah. And then on top of it all, that's eh, not a very good mystery, was sort of the thing. Hey, well, the, I mean, you know, okay, it is actually legit for you to be a current critic and when a movie is absolutely dated on arrival... Saying that, well, yeah. it doesn't. It can be still be good, no, but you, it's a movie from six years ago. All right, yeah. that when there's legit. a cultural shift that has happened that is dramatic. That is actually a legit thing for a critic to say. Well, that is a legit thing, and the and one of the problems that it happened to Robert Stevens, and mm-hmm. I and I'm not sure that uh, the failure of this movie didn't damage him forever. This well, guy who should have been the next Lawrence Olivier. Well, apparently what I've found out. And, and, and by Robert Stevens, Sir Robert Stevens, I mean the gentleman actor who plays, um, who plays Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. It's yeah. one of the best performances of Sherlock Holmes you're Absolutely. ever going the to. The best performance. Yeah. And in fact, I, I would say that everyone else is standing on the shoulders of, uh, I mean, well, he's also standing on the shoulders of uh, the, the various portrayals because he's mm-hmm. doing revisionism yeah. with it. But- Everything since the the show Sherlock, for example, and I think they would even openly admit, yes, of course. I, you know, I, I look. I might I might push back against that just a teeny tiny I bit. Think, I'm right. sure that if you I, talk I, I to that guy, he would probably say, no, "I beloved no, this I'm, movie." Not about that, all right. No, but about this being the definitive betrayal, all right. But but uh, uh, you know, but one of the things that happened when I did a, a little bit of uh, half-ass research was there's two different accounts of what happened during the course of the making of the movie. At some point. The official talk is that they had to shut down for two weeks because he just was overloaded with the character and he was suffering from exhaustion. Mm. And so they had to shut down two weeks. Okay, that's the official report. The unofficial report is he couldn't handle it and he tried to commit suicide during the making of the movie. Wow. And they shut down for two weeks and then he finished it. There is an undeniable aspect that you know, he was married to Maggie Smith, Smith at the time. Who left him three years later. Yeah. yeah. So the only other movie he did after that for a long period of time was the George Cooker movie she did, Travels with My Aunt. After that, after this, after the starring part in this epic, you know, he basically just appeared on a whole lot of British television until he started making like, cameo appearances and like The Duelist and stuff like that yeah. in the, at the end of the 70s. You know, so this scuttled his entire movie career. And he plays it dark. He plays it yes, absolutely. as funny as he is. He plays the the tragedy of Holmes. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, he's and, and look, I don't know what kind of actor he is. All I know is that he's a Royal Shakespeare Company guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that um, he enters into this movie 
He is, I think, incredible in the film and brings a great level of compassion to the character. I wanted to add this too, and it's I'm glad you brought it up about Sherlock the television show because that's actually what struck me as someone that had watched the television show um, a lot. Actually, is how much Stephen Moffat probably owes royalties to uh, this entire version: the darkness, the drug, mm-hmm. just his the way they cast Irene Adler in the new Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch is almost exactly the way they cast his tragic heroine in this. The other thing that struck me with this one is how fast and how funny it was. Just like how much it did completely move the story and did progress. And the fact that I didn't feel anything was missing from this and the fact that we know that there was a lot missing from this. It moved like Ken Russell from the 70s was pushing it. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And the fact that there's another version of this with, what, 15 minutes? No, it's like, a, it's, no, it, it's... Uh, yeah, Quentin, what, explain that there was a, yeah. the roadshow thing. This was designed to be a roadshow film. That, w- that would have been about two hours and 45 minutes. There you go. And the idea of it, it was meant to be four separate, self-contained stories that ended up telling one tale. And similar to the way the Pulp Fiction was three separate stories that ended up telling one tale. There's the, the, the wild non-sequitur comedy section with the ballerina. Mm-hmm. Then there's the story with the, uh, with the submarine. But then there was two other stories that that they took out completely. You said maybe the card with the diamonds at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. The, when you see the card of the diamonds at yeah. the beginning, when you're they're opening up Watson's old case, yeah, of all of his artifacts, that card plays into one of the two stories. I mean, literally, it was meant to be each new story was oh, oh the case of the curious bride, you know, yeah. That. And then they were all worked their way, you know, but with obviously the one with the with the uh, with the German spy is yeah. like the the main story that carries you through the whole film. The other two sound l- literally like they were supposed to be like the ballerina one, which is yeah. completely unto itself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I actually have a theory also, because mm-hmm. when we were watching this the other night, we were thinking how complete the film feels and thinking, well, what's missing? And there's nothing really that you would want to add to this. Yeah. It's already a very complete It seems meal. completely complete. Yeah. yeah. Complete meal. I did think about something that would have been interesting considering where the two leads end at the end of this are Watson and Holmes is there's elements to the Watson and Holmes relationship that are really tender. The ballerina one cast them in this whole we're not homosexual situation. Mm -hmm. But I do think before we went into the spy, it would have probably been nice to see the other side of their dynamic, how much Watson saves Holmes and vice versa. And I bet you that's what that story probably shows. Well, I think one of the things, I I think the biggest loss from the the other two stories, uh, aside from Wilder's original vision, is... In the first half of the movie, it's the only Sherlock Holmes movie where Watson is absolutely a co-lead. He's not supporting. He's an absolute co-lead. But because of the over- It, it could even be argued he is the lead. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, he's telling the story. <laughs> yeah. 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 But he's not just a sidekick in the first half. And I remember making that case while we were watching the movie. And then in the second half, that's right when he starts retreating because he's not integral, all right, to the mechanics- of the mystery that the last part of the movie takes place in, where I've heard that especially the other two stories are more comedic and they are about Watson. 
Mm. Yeah. He's a co-lead. He's not a sidekick. Now, this was the, the roadshow version. Mm-hmm. So then w- the studio. So basically what happened was, well, the studio knew what time it was. It's 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 it's, it's 1970. It's United <laughs> Artists. It's 1970. Everything is uh, new Hollywood shit. This is obviously from an old time. Who the fuck are any of these people starring in it? Yeah. And they've just had one flop after another with a bunch of movies made with this older mindset. Some young Turk at the studio is like, Billy who? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was Billy who, but I think it was just, you know, it was what it was. It's a movie made from a mindset from 1966. Yeah. So they go, okay, look, let's just cut it down, make it a regular movie. We're not going to do the fucking road show thing, advanced tickets. We're not going to own Radio City Music Hall. Just make it a regular movie. And so they did. But the worst part about it is they destroyed a lot of the footage that happened. Now, as it turns out, though, you can see in the new Blu-ray that that came out, they've got a section where they tried to reassemble the missing pieces. So what happens is one of the stories, they don't have the picture, but they have the audio. Hmm. And so they have the script and they describe maybe some photos and stills. So you can get this, get the whole story. You can get the whole audio of the story with visual aids to help you. I'll be interested to see that. And then the other one, it has all the picture, but none of the sound. Uh, So it's all done with subtitles. If only the two could come together. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently though, you, you get a sense of it. You get, you get the charmingness and the, uh, the comedy of, mm-hmm. uh, of well, the different well, stories. And you, get, and, and you definitely get to see how it would have played out. But the thing is, you. You, what's weird is like a wine reduction, cutting it has not taken away any of the goodness that yeah. is in this movie or any of the performance well, or any of the themes. His editor cut it and apparently is like, well, it was like, it was easy to cut down yeah. because the other two stories were non sequiturs. The way that the ballerina stories yeah. are non sequitur yeah. to the to the uh, the submarine story. And when so much attention gets <laughs> the Loch Ness given, monster story. When so yeah. much attention is given to what's lost, like very <laughs> like less attention is given to like what is still there, which is like so much. Oh, oh no, more there incredible. Is nothing about this movie that suggests surgery in any way. The, yes, it's crazy how well the script holds together. It's. I think it may be one of Billy Wilder's best screenplays, if not maybe as far as physical writing, his best screenplay. And didn't you say he disowned it to an yeah. extent? No, he lo- he thinks the, he thinks the script is the best script him and Diamond ever wrote, but he disowned the final product. product. Yeah, because it well, wasn't that, the whole thing. That was a short-sighted mistake on his part, as a, just speaking as a as a viewer, because the movie is super special yeah, and and, that, and has since become but that, uh, imitated okay. for the obvious reasons because of how good it it, yes. it is. Okay, but that that would be like uh, uh, the studio taking Pulp Fiction away from me and then cutting it in chronological order. Quentin, yeah. we sat down and there was actually uh, parts of Pulp Fiction when mm-hmm. you know in our initial or and and Reservoir Dogs mm-hmm. uh, that was in your cut, could not go. And then after discussion, it's like, no, actually it's better no, with I with understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and you were convinced at certain points, like this is well, it. That's just the process. But I'm saying, look, a studio could have taken the movie away from me at that. Well, they couldn't because I had power at that point. But, but uh, uh, you know, but if it was taken away from me and cut in chronological order, I think the movie would still survive. It would still be funny. It would still be interesting. But I'm going to disown it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's a That's a call out to anybody out there who wants to give that a try. Oh, is Make gosh. me a 90-minute version of Haven't Pulp Fiction. Haven't they already done No, that? a lot of people have cut it. it <laughs> it's not... so easy to do, all right? <laughs> you can do it with two video recorders. You don't need... <laughs> who's the um? Who's the actress who plays the the femme fatale in this one? I forget, but she reminds me of the same thing I say about Anya Taylor Joy. She gives mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. face. Mm-hmm. She just has great face. Like she doesn't need to be doing anything. 
her face is dynamic and interesting enough that you want to watch her. I liked that aspect of her performance. Even when she's just like laid out, Mm -hmm. you know, waterlogged. I was invested in only her. Look, I will now go on what I think is, I'm not going to say a failing of the movie, but I mean, I, I think the movie's Achilles heel where I think the movie has a weakness. Um, I think there is a weakness in the three leads of the cast. As good as they are, I think there's a weakness. And I'm talking about Robert Stevens as, as, as Holmes. Colin Blakely less, but I'll still include him. And, and, and definitely the girl playing the, the French or the Belgium girl. They're, they're the three leads of the film. You think it's your favorite portrayal of, of Sherlock Holmes in cinema. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. I'm actually not going to disagree with that. All right. I, I can't disagree with that. Um, like much better than any of the. No, no. There, and and there's absolutely or... is this kind of Christoph Waltz aspect to Robert Stevens, mm. where it's just, he obviously has a tremendous uh, a facility with language. Completely. You know, you know, he's, you know, he's made to recite dense text. But at the same time, as fantastic as he is with text, it's not a performance just from the neck up. You know, his entire physicality is uh, important to Holmes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, he's so skinny that he actually almost resembles Ichabod Crane more than he does like the classic image of Holmes. But there is a complete physicality to it. However, I'm just saying as an interesting counterpoint, I think it is an absolutely magnificent portrayal of Holmes. I'm not sure it's a great performance. As an audience member, I'm not quite as entertained as I would have been with a more entertaining actor playing the role. I think there's a low, I, th- I think there's a low wattage when it comes to the three performers that I frankly, I have to say, I don't think would be there if Peter O'Toole was playing Holmes. I think there would be an entertainment factor that's not there. I think there needed to be, with all his braininess, there needed to be a touch of a musical quality to help sell the comedy even just a little bit more and just to entertain me. I'm not damning them to hell. I, I think they're exquisite. But Christopher Lee as Mycroft is so motherfucking fantastic, is mm. so amazing. Mm. And he has the star power that the three other actors combined do not have. That's and I fair. think that's an undeniable facet. When Christopher Lee okay. comes in, you're not looking at anybody. Okay, I'm gonna make Christopher a, Lee. I want to make a case for this, a rebuttal, sure. if, if we could. Uh, the meaning of the title, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, is these are the secret diaries. And then as we are introduced to Sherlock Holmes in the beginning, he is not six foot four or however. He's a number of inches shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Watson has been exaggerating everything along the way. He's not as smart. He's not as this. He's not as that. Oh, and that's in one of my favorite ways, parts about the script is that whole in many ways, de- deconstruction. Correct. And the Watson, who Watson is describing is Peter O'Toole. Mm. Mm -hmm, Yeah. If we had had Peter O'Toole, then we would have had one of Watson's stories. Mm. We would not have had the guy who is not living up to being Peter O'Toole in real life. His brother, on the other hand, is the... um, I buy your hypotheses 110%. I'm still an audience member sitting in a movie wanting to be entertained. So I, I think, cried at the end. So I was. Oh no, I did too, and you know I did. <laughs> yeah. So we're not talking about it right. ultimately not being effective. 
I, ha- I just have this instinct in me that just wants to defend Sir Robert Stevens. <laughs> and, and even hearing that there, that he was troubled during the making of the film to the point of uh, committing suicide makes me think he was probably injecting cocaine during the making of it. Makes me think that he immersed himself into character and, and perhaps even got lost in character. Like, I want to make excuses for the guy. So I'm just going to say, I believe that this guy gave himself and serviced himself to the performance. I think even Billy Wilder looked beyond what, what is the difference between this movie, Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, and, I don't know, Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, that's where we would have cast Peter O'Toole. Yeah. And uh, I don't know who you would have cast. Who would have you cast as Watson against Peter O'Toole? Just out of curiosity. Oh, I don't know. I, I Frankly, okay. I can't imagine anybody but Colin Blakely now. Well, All right. I mean, I thought he was just so entertaining. To me, he had the star charisma yeah. that the other yeah. two didn't well, he, have. I, yeah. If, if if I had to say who would I rather have seen play uh, Sherlock Holmes, it probably would have been Rex Harrison. Yeah. Mm. Because I think Rex Harrison has the exact same facility with, with language and dialogue that Robert Stevens has, but he has that extra little bit of uh, sleazy movie star yeah. charm. There is an austere aspect to the movie it it it, if it airs it airs on the too austere way now i actually appreciate that and i i mean i applaud that that's why that russian ballet sequence is so much fun that's why it's so fucking fun that's when you get that's when you get that taste of ken russell 60s comedy (laughs) bit all right yeah i will say too on the end of that one though is for folks that haven't seen it i don't want to spoil it but the opening sequence paired with the end of this movie is really when I was like, yeah, that's Billy Wilder that can like, yeah. Yeah. like thread this needle that he places through there, that is like literally at the heart of the sadness in the movie and that he used it with just this really careful mm-hmm. bit of production design and prop work. Yeah. And, but, and when, when the, look, the set, I mean, the, the sets might've been, was, we just did a whole thing on Moonrakers and was basically auteur was Ken Adams. Yeah. And these almost look like Ken Adams sets. These, they almost look like parody of Bond sets done in the 19th century. The sets were <laughs> simply extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. They were just beautiful. And also the travelogue quality of the movie that you get yeah. to go to the Highlands, that you yeah. get to see Victorian England. These are all things that Conan Doyle fans love. Mm-hmm. They love, you know, to immerse the immersion into the world, well, less so than the particulars of the, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, the mystery plot. Well, one, I mean, one of the things that's so impressive about it, and I can see why him and I.A. Diamond maybe like the script the most that they've written is because it's definitely coming from a literary place where yeah. that's not necessarily where they were coming from and the other things. And Billy Wilder's writing in a different uh, 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 temperature than he normally writes. He's writing a fast talking, literate British comedy. Yes. And so he, he's never written where every character is British and everyone has a <laughs> British accent and everyone's making British little quips yeah. all the time. Holmes is three pages of dialogue almost every time he talks is just is 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 perfectly written. Then not only that, he has to actually invent a legitimate Cohen Doyle type mystery in order for it to work. Yeah. And it does. You know, all these random elements, you know, yeah. they all become clues and you know it's going to work into a larger larger mosaic and then it does and when it does it usually surprises you with its cleverness. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say again, um there is several elements to this big story that were divided up into little smaller stories within the Sherlock. Like literally there is so many of them from the idyllic to the town that's on the conspiracy because it's just better for them to have uh, a mystery monster. It's all there. (laughs) And then, but, but then like you said though, it builds to a devastating 
climax. I mean, yeah. and, and, and because I don't think you expect the movie to be quite as funny as it is. All right. Uh, you wouldn't by looking at the poster. You wouldn't by looking at the video box. And then the fact that it actually ends up being as funny as it is and then ends with such a gut punch ending. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most exquisite, a tender, dramatic, a, gut, mo- a tender gut punch. Yeah, yeah, a tender gut punch. Maybe the most masterful tone change yep. that Wilder's ever pulled off at the, you know, uh, for a, yeah, a film I'm actually climax. like thinking, I'm choking up right now just thinking about it, actually. Yep. A- it's, it's, absolutely. It affected me. It affected and me. And there's tremendous amount of layers of subtext so it's not exactly what it appears on the on the surface all right it's not necessarily that he was in love yes. per se even though that is the implication if you just follow the text but that's not necessarily what has been presented to us yeah. and we do not necessarily take it that way no it is in some ways the fact that he's even moved by it is more of the thing I think to mark yes. like the fact mm-hmm. that this even affects him in the smallest way and it's more about what that means for the two men and how they deal with their friendship. You know, Quentin and I, uh, before you arrived, uh, we just popped on the beginning. I asked him to pop on the beginning just so I could watch just the beginning again, just because I wanted to see the cinematography, like the mm-hmm. that unpacking of mm-hmm. the time capsule that Watson has <laughs> made that's filled with all of the artifacts. And as they unpack it, and it was just like looking at all of the various uh, things, you know, Holmes's ring with the compass inside of it, mm-hmm. the the playing card that we mentioned mm-hmm. in his hat and his pipe. But then they opened up his little pocket watch and you see her picture inside of it. And it's, it, when you see that, you don't notice that at the beginning, but she means enough to Holmes that he's carried in his watch. Mm-hmm. Yes. Her picture. That's really special. Like, I love that. Well, yeah. but also- because the movie is so deep, you actually understand something. I don't think the picture was put there until after her Japanese episode. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, in fact, I'm positive. Yes. Yeah. That it was the Japanese episode that made him put a For picture sure. of her Ab- in the For world. Sure. Ab- absolutely. But wow. How deep is a movie that you can actually make a declarative, a declarative statement like that, and you go, yes, 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 absolutely. Exactly. Well, yeah. no, I mean, but look at the, but just look at that opening. That's what I was saying. Like mm-hmm. that opening has so many careful points of filmmaking, whether it be the picture, whether it be the prop that we haven't really uh, discussed mm-hmm. more, but mm-hmm. everything from the colors. I think there's a scarf or something that he actually yeah. wears. Mm-hmm. They all show up within the larger. Yeah, story. you just realize. From the very first shot for me, we're in the the safest of hands who are going to carry us through this movie. Exactly. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're joined by Gala Avery. Uh, Hi, Quentin. Hi, Roger. And hi, Jackie. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Thank you for having me. So my favorite Billy Wilder film, I'm team double indemnity. Mm -hmm. 
that was the movie that actually, when I watched that, I went, wow, I love crime noir. Mm-hmm. That was honestly my like understanding of what crime noir was. So I'm 100% team double indemnity. Second would be Sunset Boulevard. You know, Quentin, you didn't say what your favorite Billy Wilder film was. Oh, that's easy. Five Graves to Cairo. Mm. French Tone and Eric von Stroheim playing yeah. Rommel. Yeah. A magnificent Rommel. Von Stroheim. Actually, the, and how I discovered that, I, and I discovered that movie fairly late. I actually didn't watch it until I was writing um, Inglorious Bastards. And I was trying to watch movies made during the 40s that were directed by directors who had, who had lived in Europe and had had to leave Europe because of the Nazis and started making movies in, in Hollywood. Uh, so I, I watched a whole series of those movies. And then I was trying to watch, there's not that many speculative fiction <laughs> World <laughs> War II movies out there made in the 40s and the 50s. But one of them is Five Graves to Cairo. Yeah. And it was so charming and so funny and so clever. And Eric von Stroheim was so terrific that it actually... Kind of, I, not that I needed a co-signer for what I wanted to do on *Inglorious Bastards*. Nevertheless, Wilder co-signed my my idea of doing World War II speculative fiction with Five Graves to Cairo. Yeah, he would have loved *Inglorious Bastards*. Oh, that's a nice thing to say. You know, I actually haven't seen that one, Quentin, but I'm going to go home and watch it like right now. Oh, great! It's 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 so clever. It's so much fun. When it comes to the private life of Sherlock Holmes, this might not have been the movie needed back then in 1970, but. I think it's the kind of movie that's needed now. Mm -hmm. I think this classic kind of storytelling where, as Roger said, you feel right at home is something that we're missing in today's modern market. I don't know if we have this. Uh, Here, here. I think just the look of this movie, the softness, Mm -hmm. the shots, the color. Like when they're with the ballerina and she has that mirror Mm -hmm. that's just all like six mirrors and it's all of her and the camera moves. The camera work is so superb on this film. I, it gives me goosebumps. No, it's it's actually he's uh, never been a camera first director y- e- yeah. either. But th- there is an elegance. But this guy, Christopher, elegance, yeah. Christopher Chalice, who uh, who, who, who shot the, this movie. Who the fuck is that? I've never heard well, of him. Well, he, he was the camera operator for Pressburger Powell, uh-huh. and so he did like uh, Night Ambush, Miracle in Soho, all the rank classics. Mm-hmm. Like he, this guy was like one of those workman DPs who ended up doing like you know two for the road. Chitty chitty bang bang, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. You know, like a real workman, but you know, starts off as an operator for Pressburger Powell, and so on red shoes. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at the colors in this, and I was like, oh my god, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the guy who was the uh, um, the student of Jack Cardiff, yeah, you know, the DP of the Red Shoes. Big fan of his as a director as well. I, I see that in this film, and just the the the, the well, color there, is just incredible. I think two, what happened to color in movies is the question. It's like yeah, I think there's specifically two moments with the color that really stood out to me. I'm not sure about you guys. The first one is the the ballerina when she's all in red, lounging, and she has all the red roses behind her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like color layered upon color layered upon color. And then the moment when they Sherlock Holmes and the double agent or secret agent or mm-hmm. whatever, they're out 
on Lake Loch Ness having their picnic yeah. and she's wearing green yes. and it's on the green, on the green, on the green. It's the yeah. color laid upon color laid upon color and it is just so beautiful. It's actually one of the one sheet shots, I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. That yeah. Uh-huh. I'm so glad you mentioned that one too because I felt for those that are listening that that care and I will represent uh, the people that do in this, the costumes of oh. our oh, female so lead beautiful. are absolutely incredible and I'm pretty sure that is probably an 18 inch waist that she is sporting with that. <laughs> it is serious but so gorgeous and again just statuesque uh, you know I, I also have to say the um in the dance hall sequence mm-hmm. where there's that amazing number where the ballerinas mm-hmm. transform from all the female ballerinas into the male ballerinas mm-hmm. and the female ballerinas are all wearing kind of white mm-hmm. and all dancing together with watson and mm-hmm. it's simply one of the most striking sequences ken russell likes sequences. Yeah, yeah. you know how much i love ken russell mm-hmm. and um and then suddenly they they become replaced by these male ballerinas who are all wearing Almost like green, velvet, green, green velvet, costumes. green tunics, crushed, yeah. uh-huh. crushed yeah. oranges and yeah. crushed greens. You can feel the fabric. You can actually—they look like the chorus of Les Mis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's it's like you're watching, you know, the the Technicolor Robin Hood, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. with those costumes. And I looked at that and I was like, wow! Like in a modern movie, you know, Denis Villeneuve would have come in and let's suck all that color out. <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah, let's sh- shoot it on video and run it through the deflavorizing machine. <laughs> and and in this, I'm I'm just feeling every beautiful pop of color of Eastman color jumping out at me, and it's just like invigorating for my eyes. It was like it washed my eyes of. Look, look. Uh, I, I, look, I agree with you, Kyle. I mean, there is a there's a level of expertise and craft when it comes to all the heads of the departments together on this movie that I don't think could be duplicated today because I don't think I, I think that craftsmanship has fallen to a small handful yeah. that 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 can actually still do it. And like, and when I say do it in the '60s way, I mean physically fucking do it. Yeah. yeah, this this is total British craftsmanship when craftsmanship was king. Yes, when you know when the British industries were run by absolute craftsmen. And I do think there's a lot of benefits for being able to make movies on iPhones and all that kind of stuff. There is definitely benefit, and a whole lot of people and a who, place for it. And, and a, a lot of people who didn't have voices can now have a voice to make a movie however they want. But there has been a loss of craftsmanship yeah. because of it. And then you, to look at something like this, I don't know. There's only a few people, Spielberg, a few other people who could be able to duplicate it because they could be able to get the craftsmen in order to duplicate yeah. this. Yeah. It's almost like uh, because watercolors now exist and oils can't be around anymore and people have forgotten how to paint in oils. Mm. That's exactly it. That's exact. That's exactly what's happened to photography. And now all of a sudden, no, no, no there can only be watercolor. No, no, that's exactly what's happened to film photography. Yeah. Is you know the people producing most of the images aren't sophisticated enough in order to make something that can survive three different dupes of a film print. And so, so what you want is what's playing in the movie theater. Uh, when they mm. go to the the Diocles Club, is that the name of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. When they go to the Diocles Club, which is Mycroft's uh, club, there's <laughs> yeah. this wonderful. <laughs> just even hearing you at the Diocles Club. <laughs> Oh, it just like makes me giggle. <laughs> There's this deep, deep uh, shot showing the kind of depth of this club from hall to hall to hall to hall, and the various shafts of light and pools of light that are that are carefully and delicately placed in. Oh, he it, builds magnificent sets just for homes to walk through, and you never see the set again. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
And I think actually it goes even further than just the look, like the texture and the look, because that dance scene, I'm so glad you brought it up. That dance scene is amazing. This like the transition between the the women to the men Ugh. in the line Ugh. with Watson is phenomenal. It's a visual gag that requires somebody at the skill level of Billy Wilder or maybe a Spielberg to be able to pull that off. But I will make my case what I said earlier. Part of the reason it works is there is a music hall outsized comedic quality to Colin Blakely's performance yes. that sells the yes, gag. Yes, it's not just true. Billy Wilder. You need a comic. You need a Joker in that deck to sell that gag. That's why he ended up finding his way into the Return of the Pink Panther mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> or, gosh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever Pink Panther it was that yeah. he was in. I agree with you because it's not just one master. Roger said, like, this is a film created by a master. It is masters mm-hmm. yeah. Everyone in this movie is a master in their own way. And going back to the dance transition... When they whisper to each other, oh, like, Sherlock is is gay. He's mm-hmm. a gay man. Yeah. And you watch them with the cinematic language of the camera. And the camera is telling the story. You never hear what's being whispered. And the camera goes from each person to person. And then it pans up to the man mm-hmm, yeah. who just smiles. Yeah. <laughs> and you know in that moment what's being told. There's also a, a, a beautiful close-up captured by Christopher Chalice, which is of Holmes. And it's classic classic cinematography, which was probably not in vogue at this moment, where the the front of his face is dark. They've got a glancing light on the back of his face and of Sir Robert Stevens's face. And he has such a um, British mm-hmm. <laughs> face that the way it's capturing light, but they make sure, which nobody would take the care to do anymore, to make sure that he has little eye lights in there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That was a big thing back then. Yeah. You make sure your star's got an eye light. No, it's a very big time. thing, yeah. So we can see the sparkle in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And that sparkle, it's the magic of movies. I I think the cinematography in this film is uh, some of the best cinematography I've seen in years. And I have a friend who's a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. He's watched every single Sherlock Holmes movie, every TV show, and he told me this is the best. Mm. He told me this one, because you watch them all and he says they start to bleed together and you start not really remembering and stuff. But he said there are, are two things he will always remember in this one. One is the dance hall scene, yeah. which mm-hmm. goes, it's yeah, not it's like, Sherlock, it's Watson. it's Watson. It's Watson, which arguably this is Watson's story. Yeah. And then also his drug use, mm-hmm. that yeah. he's a cocaine addict. Well, it is It is Watson's story. He's narrating it. And the title is the title of his, uh, I mean, it's basically yeah. his book. No, no, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, 7% Solution could almost be a sequel to yeah. this movie. Yeah, Because yeah. right. yeah. it's coming from the sequel. same- yeah. A loving sequel. A loving yeah. sequel. Because it's coming from the same whiz kid. We're going to yeah. take Arthur Cohen Doyle and do our own thing with it. I would put this on par with another movie. I My, my other, uh, and I might put it a little bit above this one. Again, I think for the, the tawdry enjoyment of it all, uh, would be Murder by Decree. That's oh. my other favorite uh, uh, Holmes movie. Okay, with uh, uh, Bob Clark yeah. and uh, our our friend Jean Vivier Bougeau, sure, who we sure. love, uh, uh, and but you know, uh, uh, Christopher Plummer, uh, a fantastic, amazing performance, and, yeah. and 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 it's a great Canadian film. And yeah. also, yeah, it is a great Canadian film. And as Pauline Kael said, the greatest performance of Watson ever in the case of James Mason. You know, but I, I, but, say, I, I think but I put Murder by Decree right on on par with with this one. I know, and I you guys laughed at me about this one, but it was an interesting exercise, and it is a film. But they did do um, one of the Sherlock episodes as a film called The Abominable Bride, mm. where they take the Benedict Cumberbatch character and Martin Freeman, and they put them back 
and contemporary to Arthur Conan Doyle. I really just enjoyed mm-hmm. the mishmash of that. Mm-hmm. I just like kind of like that as an interesting sort of exercise. You can't really reinvent this world when you talk about Sherlock. So any ways where you can make it feel completely familiar but different, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy that. Okay, and... I have another review for Private Life of Sherlock Holmes that appeared in the November issue from 1970 of Films in Review, and it was by Arlene Kramborg. One goes away from this unpleasant and unnecessary film wondering why anyone so talented as Billy Wilder collaborated on its script, directed it, and produced it. For its storyline is a humorless and jumbled spoof of 19th century espionage, and some of its sequences have no purpose other than to suggest Holmes was a sex pervert and his use of narcotics a legitimate relief from boredom. The deliberate utilization of a fictional character of worldwide popularity to promote or condone these two vices is reprehensible. In addition to its sociological evil. The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes has cinematic sins. The worst of these is its casting. Robert Stevens makes Holmes seem effeminate, petulant, and devoid of common sense. And Colin Blakely as Dr. Watson is more vulgarly bumbling than Cohen Doyle's meant Watson to be. Except for Jean-Bierre Page as a German spy, Sterling Holloway as a gravedigger, and Christopher Lee as Holmes' brother Mycroft, the rest of the cast is always unattractive and frequently inept. The art direction and set direction are artless, as is Christopher Chalice's color photography of them and of the exteriors. The bulk of the action is unbelievable and involves German agents trying to get the plans of a submarine the British are constructing in Scotland. It's so flat-footed, crudely put together, and unfunny, one is amazed that Wilder and his collaborator, I.A.L. Diamond, were its authors. Ditto for the dialogue. Once a Wilder Diamond forte. Wow. That is a very hard review. Like, <laughs> you, you think? Like, a, But like weirdly hard. I mean... No, no, no. No, she hates there, it. There is an axe to grind that's well beyond the movie. I mean... Well, no. Artless? I don't know about that. I mean, the thing about, I mean, you may very well be right. But also, uh, in a film magazine, people just hate certain people. Yeah. You know, you just hate this director or you just hate this movie. I and just you hate go, Billy Wilder. Yes. Or you, you, or you hate. <laughs> That's his, the person I'm going to choose to hate. Oh, you hate his new movie or you hate the, the way his last three movies have been. Yeah. And it is through the lens of when that movie was released, which was. Yeah, 1970. He was, he was considered an anachronism through the film. Exactly. Okay, but okay, not in films and review. Okay, they are so old-fashioned, <laughs> all right, in films and review. <laughs> they are the old guard. They are the old guard. Yeah, they're still like writing, you know, uh, Topaz is still on their cover. <laughs> so the last review I'm going to read of Private Life of Sherlock Holmes comes from a book called The Golden Screen, 50 Years of Film by Dillis Powell. Now, who Dillis Powell is... She probably wouldn't like being referred to it this way, but she's sort of the Pauline Kale of Britain. Mm-hmm. She reviewed in December 1970, Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. She had a very interesting take on it all. Conan Doyle's qualities as a writer have not, I think, been generally recognized. His invention, his creation of a world inhabited by consistent and indestructible characters, yes. But I'm thinking of him as a stylist, 
of that unfussy, direct narrative manner precisely fitted to his material. It is so apt that scarcely anybody notices it. Billy Wilder, who has directed The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, is another direct writer. He may work in a medium needing the intervention of players and technicians, but is still ultimately dependent on the writer. And by writer, I mean not only the scenaricist, but the director, who after all writes his films in his use of performance and movement and the relation of images. Even when you don't like a Billy Wilder piece, you can see that it is efficiently written in those terms. Mr. Wilder is a scriptwriter, his own scriptwriter. For the current film, his partner, and for some time past, is I.A.L. Diamond. And the result is a comedy, well, nearly a comedy, which one recognizes as a carefully composed, sophisticated essay in the genre. One can say, as one can nowadays so rarely say of a book, that it is decently written. One can relax and enjoy it. Alexander Tanner's uh, contribution as production designer, the persuasive sect decorations of Harry Cordwell, a coherent plot and witty dialogue. I have been trying to make out why, with all of these things that I appreciate and enjoyed, I still don't rave about the film. One or two sequences don't quite work. For instance, though the idea is good, the visit by Queen Victoria, the vengeance of the silent spy strikes me as a shade cold-blooded for Holmes. But these aren't enough to uh, smother enthusiasm. And anyhow, it is not divergence from the spirit of Conan and Doyle that I find disturbing. On the contrary, I believe it is the fidelity of the new adventures. They are almost too close to their models, with the result that when now and then they break away, one finds oneself irrationally upset. Anyway. It is absurd to grumble when the whole experience has been so absorbing, so civilized, and, to use a word not often found in praise of the cinema, so literate. Let's just sit back and appreciate it. That's really true. I mean, the literacy of the movie, you do feel that. And yeah. her complaint, weirdly mm. enough, almost sounds like the literacy of the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. the, the movie's ability to be Conan Doyle-like. And for anyone who wants to watch The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, this movie's available all over, so you're in luck. But I would say try to get the Blu-ray yeah. so yeah. you can see the deleted scenes. Or I'm going to get it. Scenes, I'm, 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 buy I'm buying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm buying it as well. Yeah. We're Same. all buying it at this yeah, table, yeah. and you should too. I got my VHS on eBay for $19.99. I was so jealous of Quentin's key video with that beautiful <laughs> rainbow box. Anyone who hasn't seen a key video, oh my gosh, you're going to want yeah, one. check out our website to see that one. Yeah, <laughs> check it out. Uh the Video Archives one was purchased back in the day for $69. And the number of the tape was 2522. Wow, <laughs> 2522. Jules Verne took you from the center of the Earth to the craters of the moon, and now to the light at the edge of the world. From National General Pictures comes Jules Verne's The Light at the Edge of the World, starring Kirk Douglas, Yul Brenner, and Samantha Agar. Here is Jules Verne's most exciting and fascinating adventure, in which one man alone must challenge a force of evil dedicated to the destruction of The Light at the Edge of the World. Kirk Douglas, Yul Brenner, Samantha Agar, and you are taken over the edge of the world. Jules Verne's The Light at the Edge of the World, unlike anything you have ever seen. In color, rated GP, all ages, parental guidance. And now we move on to our next film, which is Jules Verne's 
Light at the Edge of the World. It was put out by a horrible video company called Ace Video. We'll get into that uh, later. Uh, But Roger, uh, please uh, uh, do the honors. Light at the Edge of the World, it stars Kirk Douglas and Yul Brynner, and also the lovely Samantha Egger. And We're of all course, big fan, Samantha Egger fans the, here. You watched her Demonoid episode. <laughs> and of course, Fernando Ray, the great yes. Fernando Ray. Yes. Jules mm. Verne has taken you to the bottom of the sea, center of the earth, craters of the moon. Now he takes you over the edge. That's on the <laughs> front of the box. <laughs> so on the back, lighthouse keeper, Douglas, fights fiercely for possession of an island against a bloodthirsty sea pirate, Brinner. And there's an explanation point after <laughs> Brinner. <laughs> Shipwreck victim, Egger, also becomes a bone of bitter contention as the two adversaries battle for her affections. This Jules Verne classic is filled with thrilling action-adventure, excitement for all ages, color, 119 minutes, and rated PG. This is rated PG? Well, this version, which... What? Well, no, it wasn't rated R. It wasn't rated R when it came out. When I saw it, I saw it when it came out. Uh, But that is a... We'll we'll get into that. Yeah, we'll get get into the the PG of it all. Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't really describe the storyline that well. It does, but not d- well. Uh, uh, the idea of the film is that Kurt Douglas is uh, is working on this island on a lighthouse, which me- basically means he's been living the last year or however long he's been there on this fucking island when there's only him and the other lighthouse people on it. And he's obviously there in, in a French Foreign Legion kind of way. He's, he's loved and lost. And uh, can never get over it. So uh, to help drown his sorrows, he's moved to this uh, island and just working in this lighthouse. The captain of the lighthouse, played by Fernando Rey. And then this really terrific young guy named Philippe, who was actually, uh, I can't remember the guy, actor's name, but he's also in the Yul Brenner uh, Italian mafia movie, Death Rage, by Antonio Margariti, that actually my very favorite Margariti-directed film. And he was also, uh, uh, kind of looks like a young Harvey Cattell, and he actually was a big singing star in Italy at the time. Anyway, so these three people are working at this lighthouse. It takes place in like 1904, 1888, or something like that. It and, actually takes place in 1865. Oh, 1865. Or, or, yeah, it's or, or maybe 66 or 67. Okay. It, it, it takes place shortly after the Civil War. Okay, that makes actually. sense. Okay, cool. That um, makes and sense. It, was, it was inspired. Uh, with, well, yeah, the gold rush is still going on at the time. Yeah, yeah. Jules Verne uh, had been to the Paris Universal Exposition and saw the Fresnel lenses there mm. um, in 1867. And he was so captivated by the Fresnel lenses that he just thought about them mm-hmm. his entire life until mm-hmm. he wrote the... Uh, and this is his last novel. book. This is yeah. the last book he would ever write. You know, so uh, they're on this island with this lighthouse and they make a big case about, you know, they are part of the lifeline to the sea. If you're stuck in a storm and you're stuck in the, in the black and all of a sudden you see that light, that, that that's home. That, that's, that's safety. That mm-hmm. is, uh, you, you, that's your bearing. It's your, it's your, uh, it, it, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the beaken that guides you to, it, to a safe harbor. I think he is, actually uses the expression, it's the eye of God. Yeah. Mm. It's the eye of God. And it is the eye of God. I see that. I see that. And then all of a sudden, uh, a ship shows up. And they, they oh, I wonder what's going on with this ship. Maybe, maybe there's a medical emergency. Maybe there's something that needs to have happen. And so uh, a Fernando Ray, the captain, and uh, uh, Felipe go on the ship to just see, can they help? Can they offer some assistance? Kurt Douglas doesn't go with him, but he just kind of watches it from from his rocky perch. And then he watches the captain and Felipe being slaughtered. And I mean, completely gutted. And he realizes, holy shit, these guys are pirates. This is, this is fucked up. And now they've come to the island 
to take it over, to take over the island. And um, and they are led by their pirate king, which is played by Eel Brenner, who is magnificent in the film. Regal. Yes. And uh, I saw this in, I either saw this in 71 or 72. I can't remember because it came out in 71, National General Pictures, which I'm always a big fan of that company, uh, came out with it. But when I saw it, it was definitely the second half of the double feature. Not only do I remember the movie from watching it as a little kid. I mean, I remember being with my stepdad. I remember being with Kurt at the movie theater. I remember us looking at the poster. I remember the moments during the movie. I remember talking about the movie on the ride home. And this was the first movie I ever saw Yul Brenner in. Mm. And I was like, who's this fucking ball guy? <laughs> I was, as a little boy, I was as much rooting for Yul Brenner as I was for Kurt Douglas because I just thought he was so badass. But I was constantly rooting for bad guys in movies because I liked the actor. Mm. And the next thing I saw, which was within the next year, I saw one of the re-releases uh, at the theaters of The Ten Commandments. And then I saw Yul Brenner in that. And I go, oh man, this guy's a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally, I was all about Yul Brenner for a little while. He was one of my favorite actors. And, but this is the, this was the first movie I saw him in. So anyway, they take over the island and they've got a plan and they've got a sound plan. That's very interesting. They know that they can control this island. They can not turn on the, uh, the lighthouse, but they can build a fire or create a light on a rocky mountain. And so then ships will go to that light and they'll crash on the rocks. And then their idea is to kill everybody that survives, kill the men, rape the women, slaughter them all, take all their jewelry, and then take all the booty from the ship. They're true pirates. They're true pirates. And I think absolutely Positively, and this includes Peter Benchley, Michael Ritchie slash the island, the most bloodthirsty pirates in the history of cinema. Yeah, I'll go with that. I, maybe, yeah. yeah. Even more than the island. Yeah. They're more authentic in their weird cockney kind of verbiage and they look more correct. Yeah. All right. But they're not as bloodthirsty as these guys. These characters are straight out of a fucking Sergio Kabuchi movie. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they could be the bad guys in fucking Navajo Joe. In fact, the uh, second in command evil guy, the uh, Aldo Sombrell, is the leader of the bad guys. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and he is uh, frightening in this. Oh, he's, he's fantastic. He yeah. doesn't have a fucking line and he's, and he's amazing in <laughs> yeah. the goddamn movie. No, but also if you are a fan of Italian cinema, if you're a fan of spaghetti westerns, like all the pirates are made up of spaghetti western, a rogues gallery of those kind of spaghetti western actors. Yeah. And so Kurt Douglas's situation is first he's just trying to survive. He doesn't have any food. He's got to scavenge for food. He's got to survive the elements. But little by little, the movie turns into a a predate of Die Hard. Because the fact that he is a capable man on yep. his own with some combat skills, he's able to, and similar to also Navajo Joe, little by little pick off versus one, then it's two pirates, like gets all the way up to eight pirates yep. at a certain point. And he does it cleverly. And he manages to thwart Yul Brenner in just the right kind of way that he gets under his skin. I got to get this fucking guy and there's enough diehard similarities where i had one like at the, at the end i was yeah. like did steven d'souza see this like even the very end yeah. with the yeah. explosion in the quote-unquote building yeah, and, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the bad guy you know falling oh! and, yeah exactly i was like oh well that's alan rickman's cat <laughs> yeah yeah yep. it's a lot very similar but it's also really great the way 
Kurt Douglas works his way up. So first it's like a, like a rose gallery of some of the ugliest people that you remember, all right, <laughs> that he's wiping out. But then at a certain point, he starts getting people in Yul Brenner's inner circle. And like, okay, now that's fucking it. That's yeah. Fucking it. All right. I've got to get Kurt Douglas. This it's, character. it's when he sits down at one point and he's had severe losses, um, both like I would oh, say yeah. symbolic losses and actual like things that he needs to survive. Yul Brenner's character. And he sits down and he's across from one of the hostage women. Samantha Eggers. Yeah, okay. Samantha Eggers. And he like he pours a drink and it's like that moment where you're like, no, I'm not having a drink. I need a yeah. drink. I, and not only well, that, God, I'm a, he I'm, pours her a drink. Like yes. I'm having a drink and I need you to have a drink with me. Well, yeah. <laughs> I will say that I was going to wait to bring this up. Okay. But I'll, but since you brought it up now, I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up now. I know you guys like this movie, the least of the three. Having said that during that scene, that was the scene of the three movies that you guys were the most into. All right. There was a certain quiet that happened <laughs> during that scene that did not exist in any of the three other movies of just you could hear a pin drop because they had you. Yeah. They yeah. just had you in their grip. You'll, you you'll not, Brenner had me yeah. in, in yeah, his, in his so. grip. Yeah. yeah. You could not wait to see how that scene was going to play out. I mean, there's a special kind of quiet that falls on an audience in those moments. And that was the only time that yesterday that that quiet happened was during that scene. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I think, yeah, if we had to kick one out of the boat, this would be the one. But even saying that, I'd still probably recommend under certain situations to watch this again, <laughs> especially with a crowd. Yeah. This is a very good. Oh, this is a terrific New Beverly movie. Yeah, communal. It's a great New Beverly movie. Exactly. It, it kills. It kills at the New Beverly. If, We've shown it at the New Beverly. If they like have that again, I'd be like, oh, no, you absolutely need to yeah. see this. I have a 16 scope print. So we show that from time to time at the New oh, Beverly. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. But I think the the part of it for me is just more that man on the run, sort of like, you know, surviving the game type, like he's just ducking in and out of there. And there's still like humor and funniness to yeah. it. Like there's a lot of, I think, um, humorous moments within it, including the biggest liability in the history of like, oh, you've come to an, have an ally. Uh-huh. I don't remember oh, that, that dude. dude. Giuseppe, I think was his <laughs> yeah, name. Yeah. I was like, you are so a red shirt. Like we know you're going to die. It's yeah, just yeah. how bad are you going to mess things up before you do? So the book is pretty different. Uh-huh. Than, oh, than oh the uh-huh. movie. Well, first of all, the... The name of the novel, uh, Le Fer du Bout du Monde. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Fer is a lighthouse, and Bout du Monde means literally butt of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And so. The ass end of the world. <laughs> now think about that. Lighthouse. <laughs> lighthouse at the meets, asshole meets of the world. The asshole of the world. <laughs> oh now, now I'm just going to say, that's a, <laughs> it's a very. Go with that from here on in. Lighthouse at the asshole oh of the world. God. I mean, that's it, my new title for this. It is, it is not technical. I mean, it, it's a little much to say the asshole. That would be uh, the cool de monde, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. the ass of the world. This is uh, the, the butt of the world, the boot de monde. It's almost like the toe the tip it, yeah. the edge is a good way to translate it uh-huh. but it's a very specific word for edge because mm-hmm. he's using butt of the world so yeah. it takes place in Tierra del Fuego which is uh, at the Cape you mm-hmm. know uh, down there um, at the tip of South America and the idea in the book is that the Republic of Argentina has chosen this island to build this lighthouse on so they go there and they've built the lighthouse they didn't know that there's a whole bunch of pirates already living on the island oh. that are marooned there. Oh. And so they're already there. 
eventually Congre uh, shows up. He, uh, Yul Brenner's character, yeah. he lands on the island. And the thing is, there's there's a lot that's different about it. I mean, it it, it is a it, it's it not, is a story. It, it doesn't about, have the diehard type setup. No, it has the diehard type setup. It is an absolutely a story about human survival, but it is not mean-spirited. At least I didn't detect in my quick read of it. Mm-hmm. It's not mean-spirited the way this movie This movie is cruel. Yeah, it is cruel. Mm, it yeah. has a cruelty. I, I, I like that and about I mean it. Cruelty, a, um, and I mean cruelty in the French sense of the word, yes. cru- cruelty, like an Antonin Artaud-style cruelty, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. a theater of cruelty. Even with Grand Goulion, all right, yeah, well, you know, yeah, the, aspects. Yeah, yeah. the Grand yeah. Goulion aspects of it, The uh, but that whole thing about Antonin Artaud was that he would use cruelty as a way to wake up the audience, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. by, by showing cruel moments. Like me. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 which is why you love it so much, yeah. I think, yeah, in many yeah, ways. Yeah. This movie is shot in Catechez, Spain, which mm-hmm. is the home of Salvador Dali, who's one of the greatest proponents of cruelty. Mm-hmm. He would call himself a cruel, uh, mm-hmm. that you Artist. have to be cruel yeah. in order to do surrealism properly. And so there's something about the location in Spain that I think brings about cruelty, mm-hmm. that brought an injection of cruelty into this material, which is like a boy's story. It's like a boy's adventure. Well, you, well, you and know, also the murdering original. of pets helped. Yeah. There was no well. monkey. There is no horse. Um, yeah. in, in the, uh, in the uh, there is no mention of slavery. Wow. There is no slave. There is. Uh, there and is. These are all the elements that actually make the movie uh, like yeah, a yeah. mosaic that you remember. As Absolutely. I was, as I was, uh, like flipping through the book, I was thinking, man. Quentin would hate this because everything in the movie is all the stuff that Quentin loves. However. I found the choices that were made were, were disturbing to me. We're, in fact, we were actually questioning, all of us, some of the violence that we see perpetrated against animals. Is it real? Because it well, feels real. Part of that is just that the overwhelming uh, cruel nature mm-hmm. of, of, also, of what is well, being also, presented to but us. But also our, our knowledge of how Europe handles animals at that time. At that period. time. I had to tell myself as I was driving home, it's a movie, it's Kirk Douglas, there's no way they're going to kill that uh, that beautiful creature yeah. and, and display it on film. It can't be real. I've told myself that my entire Look, drive home. Okay, here's the thing about the... the the moment you're talking about. I would like to think that it's just an absolutely magnificent effect. The reason I think it's real is it's just too good an effect. I just almost find it hard to believe that they that they faked I'm it I'm going to stick with well. you on that one, sir. I'm going to say that it's fake. They just got a good product. I, I have to convince myself of that if I'm like sitting, because... It's 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 gruesome. gruesome. It's it's gruesome, and it's like, and I have you know you know me. I have very few lines look, look, that I look, cross. Look, look, <laughs> I, look, look, I fall in the exact same boat. Actually, yeah, it's the only super line that I have when it comes to cinema. I don't want to see real death mm. in cinema. The whole point of an art form is that it's illusion, and so I don't want to see a cockroach squashed. In a movie, because that cockroach doesn't give a fuck about your goddamn movie. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the line I don't cross. And I have an issue with, a, a, you know, a lot of European and Asian cinema for that reason. I love Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky, to me, is yeah. a surrealist master. But when he kills turtles and iguanas in mm-hmm. Holy Mountain, I, I, I only beg my master will have a greater uh, epiphany in life. I bet. 
They probably didn't kill the monkey because the monkey was probably obviously a trained monkey. And so thus he has an owner yeah. who's going to go and on. And it's more valuable. Alive. Yeah. And, yeah. And that monkey has a connection with uh, Kirk Douglas. Uh, no, a, the a monkey real is a fucking actor, actor in the connection. Goddamn. He's a character. His name is Mario. Yeah. 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 No, the monkey is a fucking character. His yeah. name is fucking Mario. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to p- split the difference and say maybe it was like a squirrel. Yeah, like they got it's something, something it's else. What, a spider squirrel? <laughs> I mean, shush. You know what I mean? Like they killed something else and then said it was well, a monkey. And, and this led me to Kevin Billington, the director. Mm-hmm. and me Who does a terrific, he's a wonderful action director with not a lot of action credits on he's his like resume. A, but he's a TV a, guy, apparently. Yeah. An extremely muscular director with like really good action sense and magnificent pulp framing all right on that island you know things in the foreground things in the background and always emphasizing the masculinity and the strength of kurt douglas and the masculinity and the strength of eel brenner and the and his gargoyles whereas wilder and diamond were servicing conan doyle without even adapting him directly i feel like kevin billington in many ways is not serving jules verne he's serving himself now that's okay there's nothing wrong with that. As you just described, I think I like the movie yeah. more than I like the book. You will yeah. like Quentin Tarantino. You will like the movie better than the book because yeah. it has uh, wavos. You know, it's, it's cynical, it's pessimistic, and I like yeah. cynical, pessimistic shit. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I and you know, I do, too, and you know, yeah. I do too. I, I'm really just bringing this up because it, it's. Uh, you were I, surprised by the difference. I, I was the- shocked when they did that, only because, like, and like you said, you don't ever kill the dog. Yeah. Like for me, I'm like, okay, it's a monkey. It's our friend, the monkey. The monkey was showing him things. The monkey's showing him the cave. The monkey's like helping him. The monkey's his little buddy. We're children watching the movie. The monkey's You're, Wilson. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. The, the, we're children watching the movie. We love the monkey. The monkey is like suddenly in the hands of the pirates. Okay, no, I love that. No. I love that. I like. I like the fact that you're going to cross uh, the line. Oh, that, of course that, you do. That the bad uh, guys are so fucking evil. Oh my god, they're going to get the sh- child. Oh, they're going to kill the child. Yeah. Oh my god. Not only All that. Right. Not only that. that those are just lines that movies don't cross. Well, so I love it when you're movies right. cross. Those and lines. he made sure to cross every line. Like he made yeah. sure to say, oh. You like Samantha Egger? Guess what? I'm going to gang rape her. I'm going to have all these pirates. I'm going to have 20 pirates gang rape her. I before, love her so Before we blow up, blow her up and <laughs> sink was, her. That was the worst part about that. It was such a throwaway, like the line that Yul Brenner said, because this was the deal with her character is she impersonated her mistress like she was a a serving maid or whatever she impersonated her mistress and pretended that she was posh because she figured it would maybe save her and the yule brenner character basically i think kept her around as Mm. posh entertainment yeah Yeah. um and teased her for like you know and then he realized he could play play her as a as a a decoy well and kevin billington's point i think is to show you don't like entertain a fucking terrorist. Yeah. When yeah. Yul Brynner is like the killer, then you don't play to the killer. Yes. You don't like, you know, play nice, nice with him because eventually that's not going to work. You're yeah. going to, you're going to get red game no, raped no, by no, all the no, pirates no, and killed. No, but that's, that that's similar to uh, the dilemma that's in the Michael Cimino desperate hours. Yeah. You know, yeah. where, where uh, 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 Anthony Hopkins, you know, goes to Mimi Rogers, his wife and he goes, you're trusting Mickey Rourke. You need to trust me. Yeah, no, that was exactly yeah. what it is. And and that was what, look, I don't think that anyone can forgive that part of the audience because when I was watching it, I was like, this is harsh. This girl was just on a ship, but everybody else just got killed off the get. So it's yeah, yeah, not yeah, as yeah. if like anybody that was in her situation got 
out of it clean. But he says to her, he's just like, um, exactly, seriously. Uh, he says to her, um, you know, you're finally going to become the tragedy that you're yeah. destined to be. Yeah. Finally, the tragic princess. When he tosses her yeah. to the crew. Oh, the line that I loved was uh, after she, you know, performed her masquerade, all right, at uh, your brother's uh, uh, behest. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and he looks at her and with admiration goes, yes, all women are actresses. Yeah, that was right. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move off from this movie, I will bring up a part that I thought was absolutely delicious. (laughs) (laughs) I hate the fact that you have to preface shit like this nowadays. So it's not the fact that she's a woman. Do a deep dive on it, Quentin. It's the fact that she's a character. She's Mm -hmm. a character. And I'm interested in the character. She's making a calculated ploy. She admits to Kurt Douglas that she's not a lady of quality. She admits to Kurt Douglas that she's a maid, but she doesn't admit to Yul Brenner. She mm-hmm. presents herself as, you know, lady blah 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 blah. All right. Yeah. You know, she that she's one of the quality people of the of the ship. And, you know, and and she's got the, you know, uh, uh the demeanor yeah, the, and, and the looks to pull it off and the and the and the manners to pull it off. She thinks she's a uh, uh, uh Fooled him or convinced yeah, she him. She thinks that's going to keep her alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she thinks she she thinks. Oh, okay. No, I'm his emerald. Yes. I he's a dirty pirate, and I've presented myself as a shining green emerald, and he's going to be precious with yes. his emerald. And the moment that is kind of amazing is when your brother is killing people, and then she jumps up. As if she has some say. (laughs) No, 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 no. I am asking you not to do this because I am the number one lady here. And I am requesting from my master that he doesn't do this to keep the queen happy. And he basically looks at her. Who the fuck do you think you are? And who the fuck do you think you are to me? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to show you how little a shit I give about you. Now you get to be the queen of tragedy. Yes. And that was it. And that was it. I yeah, care no. so fuck all about you. I'm going to throw you to the crew. Yeah. All of this may be good, but it's not Jules Verne. <laughs> <laughs> fuck that. I, and I didn't want Jules Verne. I didn't want to watch fucking Journey to the Center of the Earth. I wanted to see fucking Die Hard yeah, before Die Hard. <laughs> We're back, and we suggest that you buy all those lovely products. And <laughs> back again is Gala with her take on Jules Verne's Light at the Edge of the World. Can we just call it Kevin Billington's Light at the End of the Edge of the World? <laughs> I'm happy to. I think oh Kevin Billington God. should have had a the magnificent action career that was thwarted, all right? But this movie... Bears the tail. I really appreciate you standing up for the book nerds, though. Like, I feel them coming through you through, like, all of this, like, we, he will avenge us. And I don't know that anybody would even care, but uh, this is one where there's a significant enough transformation that 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 I think takes the work into the, you know, the realm of this is the auteur's film. There is a longstanding tradition, like, especially in Japan, between manga and anime, that they can be 
two completely different things. Sure. Mm. The source sure. material always will exist. In fact, they should be two different things in, in, in so frequently in anime, right? Like they almost intentionally do changes. You will always have Jules Verne's I can always book. curl up with it Quentin at night. Quentin will always have the movie. You guys can find a happy medium in between. <laughs> well, that is, we kind of had that last night when yeah. we watched the movie. Yeah, we watched the movie. <laughs> it was only later you drew sides. <laughs> I don't think Roger is as committed emotionally as he's pretending. I think he's just, no. found, he finds an interesting thing and he's, no. and he's explaining the interesting thing. no. I think he is as emotionally <laughs> if I'm going to be honest. Knowing my dad, I find this movie unnecessarily violent. I find the animal violence, you guys have already talked about it. I don't need to beat a dead horse. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> though. He's not dead, per se. We don't know that. The monkey sure is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mario the monkey did not get what he deserved. That's all I'm going to say about that. I do not like animal violence in movies. Other than that, the movie kind of put me to sleep, I'm going to be honest. Oh, wow. I found it. I watched it in the middle of the day. The ocean was crashing. The music was going. For the whole first half, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. Like, I don't want to. This lot, movie is not. Lot of running around on the rocks of Catechez. Finally, the movie picked up for me once Samantha Egger shows up. But it was like an hour and 20 minutes too late. Now, yeah. was there an aspect about because you liked her so much in Demonoid that you were that excited about? I, yeah, That yeah. might have been it. I really loved her in Demonoid. I had never seen her in a movie, mm. I believe, before Demonoid. And I was really excited to watch her in this. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of just didn't show up. And I did like her in this. That's mm-hmm. for sure. I thought she had a strong portrayal. And I actually really liked uh, her and Kirk Douglas's relationship in this movie. Although mm-hmm. it very, very thin and brief. I love that she's like going along with Yul Brenner's plan. Like, why would you go along with the pirate's plan? You have an opportunity to escape at one point. She's very too stupid to live. She's very too stupid to live. She's actually making calculated choices that don't work out. She's not just being a, she's not being a dingbat. She's making calculated choices on her own charm. She's making calculated choices on her own charm. And I think that is the part where I find it. She is overhyping her charm. Like, she thinks a little bit too well of how much her charm is going to carry her through this. And that's just arrogant. And I would also say that, like, her reasons for not going with Kurt Douglas, they sound absolutely perfect for her character. So what? I'm supposed to hide in caves? I'm, yeah. sleeping, in a, I'm sleeping in a warm bed. They're feeding, they're feeding me warm food. I'm what, supposed to eat fucking eagle eggs with you? Fuck that said, shit. Go- I'll take care of my. I'll handle myself. By the way, being with Kirk Douglas does not help the monkey. Being with Kirk Douglas does exactly. not help the captain. This being with Kirk Douglas true. doesn't help anybody. It no. would have helped her. <laughs> he would have stashed her in the cave that they never found and he would have handled everything on his own. I mean, uh, fair, actually. But I still think, like, I I don't... I'm not even saying I blame her for her decision. And I understand the calculus. She's just using some bad equations. You know what I mean? I think it's it's good character choices and made great drama. I think there's a kind of gleeful embracing of cruelty that seems to have permeated the entire production for good and ill. This is the dichotomy of this podcast of bloodthirsty Quentin. All right. <laughs> loving how violent the, the pirates are. Loving the gang rape and loving the uh, the invisceration <laughs> and yanking out intestine. Right. Oh All of that. Okay, I love that. And then the gentle Avery. <laughs> wait, 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 wait a second. 
I don't have anything wrong with the violence, the movie violence in the movie. I have only wrong with the real violence in the movie. That's where I draw my well, line. Well, I think the only it's thing the unnecessary I, real it, violence. Well, I, I, I think, what we presume to to well, be the real only violence. real violence that's in there is when the horse does the running W. Yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah, and actually, you said you were going to oh, explain yeah, this. Maybe w. you can explain the running W. What is that? Okay, what a running W is. It's a device we used in movies in America for a long, long time until the '60s, and in the '60s they got uh, uh, outlawed. But they still continued doing it in Europe and Asia. What it is, is if you've ever seen a movie where a guy's cowboys or an Indian is like riding full on out and then the horse gets shot out from under him and kind of does a somersault mm-hmm. as the guy falls. You've seen that shot. Before. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. there's only one way to do that. The way you do it is you attach a metal cable to the front of the horse's leg. Oh. And you take the other end of the cable and you attach it to the ground and you just ride the horse out full on. And you full on, full on, full on, full on until the cable reaches its end. And it yanks the horse. It yanks his leg out from under him. And he does a somersault. And he goes ass over tea kettle that way. That's that's the only way to do it. Oh anytime you've ever seen it, that's how it was done. Well, like, I, I, And it was done. It should be a mic drop moment. And it Perf. was done on a Light at the Edge of the World. That is absolutely how they did it in, in that scene. Now, definitely a lot of horses broke their leg when that happened and they had to be put down. Mm. Oddly enough, in America, not as many horses broke their leg as you would have imagined. As barbaric a process as that is. Frankly, because in America, they were actually more committed to the horses than they were in Europe. And they kind of figured out how to do it to some degree or another. Like, for instance, William Whitney was making Westerns from the 30s on. And he did Running W's. And they asked him about Running W's. And he said that, yeah, he did, you know, he did enough in his day. He never killed a horse. He never broke a leg. He never had to put one down. However, he is very, very happy and grateful that running W's have been uh, uh, eliminated uh, from from American filmmaking. And the way that they did it to, I think they just figured out how to do it. They figured out how fast to run the horse Mm. to still get the same effect. And they knew where the end point was going to be. So they dug up the ground in a big, big way. Yeah. So when the horse does hit somersault, it's doing a somersault in powder. Well, we did see, we, we do see that this horse in this movie yeah, does, does land. Like, I did notice it landed it like, in a very heavy, powdery, like it puffed uh, up billowy. It. Yeah, yeah. Either uh, way, well, that's but how they, still it was look, shocking. Look, that's how you do it. Nevertheless, the thing about it is, even if the animal doesn't break its leg it's being terrified it's being brutalized it doesn't know this is you're almost taking a horse that has committed its life to service to the human race it's a violation of the trust that a horse gives human beings to do something like that it is is, it's scaring the shit out of them it's terrifying them and it's completely brutalizing them so even if they survive it it's just nothing to be done to an animal Especially a horse. I yeah. agree completely. Okay, but that was only one sequence towards the end. But, How did no, you feel? But, but I gotta be honest. It's like once, it those, once animals begin to, I am that person. You don't kill the dog around me. I begin to check out. If there's not something else immediately grasping and touching in the movie, I had nothing to hold on to. I had nothing necessarily to root for. Mm-hmm. So it, I think the movie was just lost the, on me. The, the thing is when 
when care has been taken to invest you into, into something and then they kill it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, once you, you you know how to you know how to manipulate me, you know how to affect me. Yeah. But man, it is just he's taking everything that I love and he's killing it mm-hmm. gleefully. No, gleeful. That's the kicker. It wasn't even some of the more violent stuff I've seen. It's almost like they recoil from their own horrors, right? Like they're, it's not like they're not going to show it to you, but there's a certain level of like, yeah, we know we're showing you the underbelly of evil. Mm. This one was like, dial it up, kitties, and eat up. This is fun. You know what I mean? Like, I still go back to that scene when Yo Brenner pours the wine. Yeah. There was not a fucking sound in that room because you guys were riveted. And one of the reasons we were <laughs> yeah. is because of all the brutality that happened before that. I'm not going to pretend that that's not true because you did not know if he was going to be... He could have sliced her up the middle like it was fucking like dressed to kill. Yes. He could have fucking married her. You don't know what the fuck's going to happen. Also, besides that, Yul Brenner himself is just magnetic. Yeah. Yeah. All he he has to do when he just lifts his cape or whatever, he kind of does a half rotation Mm -hmm. and pivots on his feet. You have to watch him Mm. when there's an actual true emotional moment that's occurring. (laughs) Uh huh. And Yul Brynner is doing his thing. It's it's riveting. I would actually say the best line, the most memorable line of the night was when Kurt Douglas is thrown at the feet of Yul Brynner. And he sits in his throne and looks down at him. And Kurt Douglas says something. Ah, do I detect an American accent? Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, I like Americans. We had such fun. Fun during the fun times of the slave trade. That was exactly right. I remember that too. And the way he said that too, you're like, oh yeah, we're supposed to hate you. I get it. And he lit up like it was Christmas. Oh yeah. No, that was a lot. So I watched The Light at the Edge of the World on a website called KinoNow.com. This movie is not available for streaming on Amazon or iTunes, etc. But on KinoNow.com, you can watch it. And I bought my VHS tape for $2. It is the same Ace Video, which I have to say is a beautiful box. But Quentin, you said you were going to talk a little bit about Ace Video earlier. You were right. It's a terrible transfer. Well, it, it, like there's been worse transfers. Like the picture quality is is a little ghostly, but not horrible. There was no logo at the beginning. Okay, company yeah, logo. It starts off with no logo whatsoever. So it says on the back, Ace Video, and you got to think Ace Video kind of knows a little bit of what they're doing for the simple fact that they've got such a magnificent looking box. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Yeah, the poster is gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. But the movie just starts like abruptly as if it's like into the opening credit sequence. And not only that, this is obviously they got a textless 16 millimeter print that was cut for television. All right, because I have seen this movie before, and as violent as you guys think it is, <laughs> it's even more violent. <laughs> when uh, uh, Felipe, who we get to love in a very short amount of time, yes. we get to really like the dude, when he's captured by the pirates and they tie him by his feet and hang him by his rope and they're slicing at him, a shot is left out and it's one of the shots of the movie. And it really, and this is this is the sequence where the gore actually really does storytelling, because what they leave out is they cut to him once, they cut to him twice, they cut to him a third time, and that's the third time is what they cut out. They've actually uh, uh, eviscerate him. They pull out his intestine, Ugh. and they pull it out. But 
it has a powerful effect in the movie, not just because it's gore, because you realize the extent of how bad these guys are. Mm. They're not just stabbing people under their arm and people are going, oh, and falling down. No, no, no. They're butchering them. And it immediately puts fear in your heart for uh, Kurt Douglas because you realize, oh, my God, this yeah. is this is horrible. Yeah, we get that anyway. <laughs> no, I, I, no, the evisceration is is a loss. Yeah. It's an absolute Look, loss. I I'm not saying that it isn't, but I'm saying I <laughs> yeah. still was able to gather that yeah, general yeah. message. I think I would have taken the organ evisceration over the monkey. I'm sure. You oh, would. absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure you would. But now, okay. But then it gets worse than that. There is this weird part that happens about thirty minutes into the movie, where apparently. When they were doing the transfer, they were probably doing a few other transfers around yeah. the same time. They had line noise. And they had line noise attached to their audio cables. So you hear the soundtrack to another movie. Oh, gosh. Playing. Yeah, at one point. Yeah. And, it's like, and it's comedic, whatever it yeah. is. This, this, like, the soundtrack for another movie playing very, very low underneath our movie. To such a degree that it's as if one of the pirates is watching TV. Yes. <laughs> in the background. It's like one of the pirates, and they're just not showing the pirate watching TV, but it's the same effect as if a TV was just on in, a, in an apartment. Yep. All right, playing off screen. This is the dark side of a VHS presentation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also, too, like I said, I want to be clear. That was probably a romantic comedy. Like, it felt so comedic. Like, I could No, at some the- point they start singing, you gotta have heart. Yeah. Miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of heart. <laughs> See what you guys get when it's video Seriously. and not streaming? So I have a question for you, though, on the streaming. Do you think you got the crazy choppy version or do you think you got it all the way through? Because yours may have been more violent. Did no. you get the evisceration? No, I don't think I got the evisceration. I think it was just him being lifted up by his leg on the pirate ship and mm-hmm. okay. killed. I don't believe I had the evisceration. But but here's the thing, though. It's a goddamn fucking shame that Kevin Billington did not do more action movies. Mm. It seems like he did Ponzi British stuff or Ponzi British comedy. Yeah, and, it looks like he was doing a lot of specials with like Peter Cook and stuff yeah, like oh, that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't like the photography in the movie at all because I just think it's counterintuitive to be in such a pretty place and not shoot the photography for, for beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, to some degree, you know, uh, but well, especially when you're in catechas. I mean, these are the rocks that inspired all of the paintings yeah. of Salvador. I mean, like, I mean, these shots should be magnificent and they and they're functional and they work. They work in a pulpy way. But yeah. They just don't work in a beauty way mm-hmm. because Henry Decal is not bringing that's not his intention. Yeah. But there is a, a genre aspect to the way he's playing with the foreground of the hills and the foreground of the horizons and the pirates in the background and Kurt Douglas in the foreground. And forget about all the fucking physical shit that Kurt Douglas does. It's a magnificent physical performance. He is just, he's climbing up these fucking rocks like a billy goat from oh, the beginning of the movie to the end. Yeah. Completely. He's running around barefoot half the time. Yeah. He's got, uh, and and also Yul Brynner riding around on that beautiful white oh Arabian horse. Oh we haven't yeah. even, with, with we haven't even, beautiful, yeah, uh, the horn, unicorn horn. With the unicorn yeah. horn. We haven't even talked his, about, his horsemanship is incredible. We yeah. haven't talked about how fucking exciting it was watching Yul Brynner ride that horse Full on out on dubious fucking rocky terrain. Yeah, I was All looking right. at it. It's like, how? How in are that, they doing? Like, if he wipes costume. out, he is fucked in off. that flowy yeah. costume too. This yeah. is no protection whatsoever, and he's basically in the costume from the mummy. Like, yeah. no. Yeah. I mean, this is like the days when if you were an actor, you had to know how to handle a horse. Yeah. These guys 
Yeah. It, it, it's incredible. It's he and the horse are one, which makes me think of that horse is so beautiful. It's like a white Arabian. There's no way. I'm sure that they're taking care when they, that horse belongs to somebody who cares. Yes. About yeah. 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 I mean, I hope nothing happened to it. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. You see him moving around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it is. I think he jumps back up. But see yeah. a lot of things moving around. Well, no, no. He, he's supposed to die in the movie. He yeah, no, shot. no. Yeah, yeah he dies movie. within the movie. Everything dies in the movie. <laughs> Everything <laughs> dies except for Kurt Douglas. Legitimately, I'm sure if the movie went on another reel, he would have died as well. Absolutely, <laughs> suicide, just like Jules Verne. <laughs> he died of scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the other thing too, though, on on that horse, where look at a modern western now, where they can barely show an actor like just sitting on the horse for mm. like two seconds yeah. and then look at what Yul Brenner does where these are like long <laughs> sweeping shots this is not any kind of camera work he just yeah I mean literally uh, could be on a Jamie rant. Fox riding off Saddleless horse uh, <laughs> yes Quentin we know you made Jamie do it at a full on gallop I got, uh, got a review to read for uh, Light at the Edge of the World uh Back from 69 to 74, Joe Dante used to write reviews for uh, oh my fi- God. for Film Bulletin. Oh, wow. What and, a treat. This yeah. is a Joe Dante written review? Joe Dante written review. Now, the thing about it is Joe Dante writes in a style very, very reminiscent of Jim Shelton. All right. Mm, you know, uh, so right up your alley. Yeah. He, he's, he's not- See. He's not quite as rude and he's not quite as, as sarcastic, even though he's definitely sarcastic. He's Joe Dante. Light at the edge of the world. Though a title like Jules Verne's The Light at the Edge of the World promises adventure in the traditional science fiction vein, this Spanish-U.S. co-production is a strictly mundane pirate picture which piles sadism upon violence with no particular skill or style. Despite better-than-average marquee factors in top-billed Kurt Douglas, who also produced, Samantha Egger, and Yul Brenner, the national general release is best suited to saturation playoffs on dual bills in action houses and drive-ins. Wow. Although six minutes of violence has been snipped, rather noticeably, from Prince, what remains is still pretty grim going for the family trade this will attract. The carnage count is way up there, with one massacre— a dismembered hand, a decapitation, and unaccountable characters impaled on flaming lances, crushed on rocks, shot between the eyes, strangled, spiked, stabbed, skinned, slashed, bashed, and otherwise mauled, topped off by something you don't often get in pictures, even these days, a 20-man gang rape. Says the guy who gleefully like kills everybody in Piranha. <laughs> Such bloodletting may please the bloodthirsty action fans, but the GP rating must be deemed misleading for the juvenile segment of the family trade, who might be expecting something in the more traditional Jules Verne vein. That's fair. Kevin Billington directs it all in deadpan fashion, whereas a little humor wouldn't have hurt. Performances are okay. Henri Dacaz's mobile camera work and the blue skies and waters of the Spanish coastal locations are attractive. He's right. I think he's totally right, though. I mean, if I was a mother bringing my child to the movies, I would not want to bring him to this one. Jules Brenner's like just eviscerating everyone. (laughs) Well, my dad did bring me to this in 1971. And we did. How how old were you, Quentin? (laughs) Well, whatever age I was in 1971. All right. You know, uh, 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 10 or 12. Yeah. Yeah. 15. No, no, not 15. All right. Like 12, you know, 12, 11 11 or 12. Yeah. Yeah. That was in uh, third grade. We go right into the third movie. Again, normally our third movie is the more exploitation-y kind of thing. Uh, And the movie this time, 
is uh, brought to you from, and I'm happy to finally do a full-on Paragon home video, Hostages, directed by Rene Cardona Jr. This is jumping off a little bit from our uh, appreciation for Demonoid as well, because this also exists as a movie from the exploitation, Mexican exploitation uh, genre. Okay, Hostages. Terror strikes the Caribbean casinos. A pack of well-organized criminals simultaneously rob three island gambling palaces and escape with a fortune in cash and gold. One of the groups invades a wealthy household and takes an entire family hostage, and a reign of terror begins. That's true. Filmed in Spain, Italy, Venezuela, Mexico, and Panama. Not to mention Puerto Rico, which they don't mention. Running time, this is great. Running time, approximately <laughs> 94 minutes. <laughs> like, it's not like we can actually know exactly how long our tape is. <laughs> I mean, I guess they want you to know, though. Like, approximately. approximately it's, 90, it's a 90-minute movie. Rene Cardona Jr. is more or less, he's the Roger Corman of Mexico. He's a, a very fun director. Probably has actually, along with Bunuel, probably directed more Mexican movies that have played in America theatrically than any other Mexican director. One of the most popular exploitation movies that ever has played at the New Beverly, every time we play it, it does well, is his Jaws movie, Tintorera. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Tintorera. Yeah. I just had a really wonderful conversation with Alfonso Caron in Rome. I was at the Rome Film Festival and he was there. And... Um, I had just seen a, a, a Rene Cardona Jr. movie, so I just brought it up to Alfonso. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's a really good movie. And we we had 30 minutes talking about <laughs> Rene Cardona Jr. And then a couple of Italians tried to get in on it. They go, who is this guy? You know, and then I go, well, he's like Antonio Margheriti. And uh, Alfonso goes, yes. I go, but he's better than Margheriti. Yes, yes, he's better. He's better. He's better. He's better. <laughs> but he's not as good as Leone or, 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 or Bala. No, 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 no. He's not as good as <laughs> He's in the middle between Margheriti and Corbucci and Bava. Um, But he's damn talented. And anyway, I, I'm happy to see anything of his. This is one of those ones where I, I go through the exploitation stuff and I'll, I'll put it on. And I'll watch it for about 15 minutes to see how interesting it is. And if it's really cool and it's interesting, oh, okay, stop it. Save that for Roger. Yeah. I'll watch it with me and Roger. And then so we watched Hostages. And man, oh, man, was this a fucking action movie. So I had low, ex- I, I mean, no expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know anything about the movie. It was like watching a William Friedkin action sequence, but for an entire movie. Yeah. That's what mm. it felt like. It, it had the pace of That's that That's exactly work. what it felt like. What, it, what what would be in a William Friedkin movie, a 12-minute sequence or a 13-minute sequence? It's the entire movie. Like, mm-hmm. if William Friedkin decided to make a movie about a bunch of terrorists that went into the house in Roma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right on. Which is like, uh, I was because I thought about Alfonso Cuaron when I was, uh, you know, you had mentioned. No, it could have been the house in Roma. It could have been the house in in Parasite. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't even trying to talk about that, but it was there. It was there. It it, it actually subtly talked about all of that because, I mean, when I was young, I lived in Mexico. And when we lived in uh, this place, that was exactly, it was exactly like Roma. Mm-hmm. And so I was watching this movie, and when they suddenly these uh, these revolutionaries 
who, you know. They're not, they're crooks. Well, no, but no. that's what revolutionaries do no, no. To, to finance the revolution. But that's not the case here. They were just money-grubbing <laughs> crooks. No, no. They they act as if they're a Bader Meinhof yeah. terrorist group, but they're not. I guess that's about robbing casinos. I guess that Nada looking one, you know, like yeah, yeah. Uh, Nadia, yeah. Or maybe some of them I think are about the cause. <laughs> like I do think the chick. Well, the cause is fuck the rich. I mean, yeah. Like I, I mean, but to the to the point within that group, I think there's varying degrees. Like I think the three that we spend the most time with just wanted the money, mm-hmm. but I do think there's other people in there that really did think like, hey. This is really going to like, you know, eat the rich. Well, the fact that there's this massive like crime gone wrong. Yes. And everything well, crime gone right. They actually get well, away with the they, fucking money. Well, they, they get away with it, but they've had to split up and yeah. people are getting caught and a uh, few are getting away and we've lost our car and we have to actually walk through the rich neighborhood mm-hmm. with our machine gun. Yeah, after this big gigantic robbery happens, you know, so the Stuart Whitman who leads the cops is and uh, then Hugo Stiglitz. They're, they're pulling a dragnet. So they're like, they're going to arrest everybody all at one fucking go. And it's one of the exciting things in the movie that all this happens. So you, you're able to do all this really fun cross-cutting because there's always something going on. And it and it seems like there's never a time to solve. Yeah. It always just seems to be happening at this In minute. real time. Yeah. At well, because this, there's about four different parallel stories between yeah, yeah. when they split up from the big group of what, eight? I yeah, think yeah, it's yeah, way, yeah, uh, is what it starts off in the beginning. And then I don't want to like pass over two. There's also an inspector. And he's basically Walter Matthau in Taking of Pelham one, two, yeah. three. Yeah, that's Stuart Whitman. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. he's very much just like, okay, I'm going to be this. And I think between him and Hugo Stieglitz, the two of them, I just love their sort yeah, of me like. Too. Well, me it's too. like they had yeah. Stuart Whitman for like under a week. Five yes. days. And, yeah, and five so they days, got yeah. him, we got him in a room for the whole movie on the on the mm. CB or whatever, mm-hmm. talking to all the other yeah. cops. Yeah. And then we've got him for our one final action scene at the airport. In a way, it matches our film Cocaine Cowboys as far as like, I this is actually pretty fucking plausible mm-hmm. what's going on yeah. here. In a movie full of wildness, this is actually completely plausible where uh, uh, three of the most desperate, meanest motherfuckers of the yeah, entire group. The baddest group, of the bad ones, the leader yeah. and the other. And the two most violent. Yeah. And the two most, the brothers. Yeah. Two brothers who are the most violent, like brothers right out of a Peckinpah fucking yeah. film. So they're in like a Bel Air. They're in the Puerto Rican version of Bel Air. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And you see some rich Bel Air fucks, all right, driving through and one, one rich young girl <laughs> drinking champagne <laughs> and throws a champagne bottle behind her because she's a rich Fuck. Yeah. All right, who cares? That's what rich fucks do. Smashes on the ground. And so smashes on the ground, and they drive over it, and it gives them a flat tire. Trapping them in the rich neighborhood. And, well, it ends up trapping them because they have stolen the car, and the way they stole the car is they ripped out the ignition. Yeah. So they don't have a key that can get to the spare tire that they don't even know if the car has. Yeah, it's like yeah. the fruit of the capitalist pigs is exactly what yeah. has uh, so now, trapped yeah. them. They're holding machine guns and they're stuck in Bel Air on on foot. Yep. And so they have to just keep moving, keep moving. And finally they decide the best thing to do is just take over a house, do a desperate hours, lie low until nighttime, and then possibly sneak out. Yeah. And that's the idea. And so then they take over the house of Francisco Rabal, you know, from Sorcerer and many other Italian movies. They take over uh, his house, which is a full house. You know, he's got a, a lovely wife played by Marissa Mel. All you fans of Danger Diabolic, she's the star. And her hot sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And their uh, a 14-year-old, a 13-year-old uh, private school 
The uh, maid and cook. Yeah. yeah. And the maid and the cook. And they hold them under hostage. And then eventually the... Uh, the cops on the outside start realizing that they're holding them hostage and then a siege happens. But the thing is, it isn't just anybody's house that they went into. They went in the house of the industrialist capitalist pig. Yeah. Who is basically- He's the president of a tobacco company, The fr- president yeah. of a cigarette company, a tobacco company yeah. in and you Puerto actually, Rico. Yeah, and you actually, you actually see like the- uh, uh, The only uh, thing worse would have been making it like a sugar plantation owner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you actually see uh, uh, the line of the factory, all right? Mm-hmm. You're rolling yeah. the cigarette. And yep. stuffing the tobacco in, which is actually really cool. And then suddenly we're presented with something of a of a conundrum as an audience member, at least for me as an audience member, which is, am am I rooting for the industrialist pig cigarette manufacturer and his family? Well, of course you are. And I, I, no, I know I am, but he's a good man. At least the way he handles his family, he handles the situation. Yeah, he he, ha- well. he handles everything well. He's not a pussy. He's not, you know, but, but he Except doesn't try to get too much. Except at the very end. Run, I think that's- While his family's no, getting on the plane, he no, runs No, 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 <laughs> no. you guys misread that. He heard the brother say, well, once we get in the air, I'm going to fucking kill that bitch. He didn't say those in those words, but it was like, I'm going to take care of shit. Okay. Right. And that's when the father made his move. Oh, so you're saying he did it to protect. Yes, oh, so because he knows, oh, shit, once they get in the air, he's going to fucking kill my daughter for killing her oh, brother. Oh, I see. Okay. Eh, maybe. I just thought he was trying to get away at that moment. And like, just because of the way he looked back, he looked back like he was saying- No, like, he was luring him away because if he runs, the guy's going to go after him and that presents a situation for the cops to kill the other guy. Well, this is perfect moment for maybe a rewatch. I just have to, to point out one quick thing though. Let's talk about the girl that I knew was dead the minute she showed up. Oh, so the, there's the a- friend of the there's sister. There's a friend. Yeah. And like any movie like this, like you- Obviously, it's been very brutal. There's tons of on the side stories. The one thing they very much established is that anybody could die because we got very invested in some of these side characters and then they would die like the girl like like, literally gets squashed by a bus. It was just brutal. And Mm -hmm. we literally followed, followed her literally through the movies. But we, again, we, we got our entrail again, shot by there. a very realistic death. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. When she gets knocked, and then when they cut to her, her intestines have all kind of exploded out of her body. Yeah. It's Absolutely. Just, to the point where we had to rewind to make sure like that's what it was because it was like that sort of like visceral to see. Um, but when she shows up and is just like not listening to anybody, she shows up. She's just like, oh, my God, I'm just coming over anyway, girl. First of all, I thought in that moment, I don't care what time of life it is <laughs> any friend of mine just invites themselves to my house like no you deserve the electric chair <laughs> like no but like one of the things is I you- actually did not mind that she died she got I mean seriously she, was, she literally was asking for does it does <laughs> anybody outside of maybe you're like overly intrusive mother and even then mm. like no but these are truly the idle rich what yeah. are they doing all day True. long they are people it is in the morning it's before school the girl hasn't even gone to school yet they haven't come to pick her up and people are driving around drinking champagne and throwing the bottles True. away because they've been out partying all night long and, and this movie did a clever trick though <laughs> they let us spend time with the family yeah. before we got to the heist I think for this exact reason because otherwise we had absolutely no case, I feel, to be emotionally attached to any of them 
by the time we're getting to the climax where they're trying to get away on a plane and you're just hoping that the bad guy's eyes Mm. dim out before he realizes that the jig is up. We had to spend that early time with him. Yeah, the movie opens in a disco and and it's the family. And you actually get to know everybody and you actually have a sense about them. And they're not all perfect. There's like, you know, little minor tiffs and betrayals between them. But you experience this family the same way you would if they were like in a sitcom or something. You you immediately get invested in who But also I think... Francisco Rapal is a terrific actor, and I think he has a lot of empathy. And I oh, think he's he, wonderful. He's yeah, a great he, actor. I think he bring. I, I think he, he brings you to his humanity very easily. I I completely identified with this movie because mm-hmm. literally, like that house in Roma, we I lived in that house yeah. as, mm-hmm. as a boy. Like the little kid in that even looked like me. It was weird, like, and it took place in the years that I was there. I mean, I remember PRI and marching the streets and stuff yeah. like that. It was like that was what the time period was like. And so. When I saw this, I I got transported into Roma somehow Mm -hmm. Mm. and thereby into my life. And then suddenly the criminals were there and they had everybody, uh, you know, being held hostage. What this movie did to me was it put me on this kind of crazy roller coaster because on one hand, I was watching this indictment Mm -hmm. of the ruling class. And on the other hand, you know, it's we've got a bunch of guys who are just freaking savage villains. Mm-hmm. And these guys are villains. You yeah. guys keep treating them like they're terrorists. I think the, it's obvious that they're just criminals. They're just crooks. They were about stealing the casino. I mean, but that's still not people I want to necessarily like rub elbows but the with. Weather, the weathermen and people like that, the reason they would rob banks and stuff like that uh, is so that I they I know could... you can make that. I'm not saying that that, I, I think the imagery suggests that, but nothing in the plot suggests that. They just robbed the casinos. Mm. But uh, look, again, it again, doesn't matter. You can take that. And no, I but take- again, the casino being the the playground for mm-hmm. the wealthy and the rich. It's like there are specifically. Uh, it, it's well, I think in this Latin American country, they just kind of hate the rich, and 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 anything the poor can do against the rich is considered okay. Well, this is just where the money is. That's going to be yeah, where the rich yeah, people yeah. are. You know what I mean? Like, well, that- I, I would I would agree with that. Except that the hostages that they take, that all the details of the cigarette factory, the champagne bottle is the dead giveaway. Yes. Because that story-wise, well, metaphorically, is literally, ha, ha, ha. Like, you even, you even said that when you were yes, describing, ha, yeah. ha, ha, And smashing no, the bottle. And that's what derails everything them. Everything you're saying is correct. I think parts of it are purposeful, but I think overall, like... Like I said, I think it's more divided. It's a but little bit. Well, I hope it's, I hope it's purposeful because no, no, I, that's time, actually what I love about the yeah, movie yeah, is, the, is well, this but conversation the, that the filmmaker is having about class. I, well, I, I think that's happening. I just don't think it's reflected in the characters' motivations. Right. But you know, at the same time, while the movie's paying attention to that, it's also a pretty goddamn good procedural as far as like how a major city conducts a dragnet. Yeah. yeah. Also, shout out to, is it the eldest daughter or the sister? I'm, is no, it, she's the sister of the, of the wife. Okay, sister of the wife. The blonde girl. The blonde girl who shot one of the bad guys. I yeah. loved her. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, that was so no, random. She's my favorite of, she's my yeah. favorite of, of the hostages. Hand absolutely. behind her back, and she yeah. was like, I'm still Bam! absolutely going to shoot the hell out of you. And was pretty, like, pissed through most of it. Oh, she like, did not give a quarter at yeah, all in that I, whole fucking film. Not you know, sure that'd be my strategy little scared for her, but I appreciate the moxie for sure. I liked her from the very beginning of the disco scene. <laughs> There's one moment that maybe flies in conflict with everything I'm saying, which is when things get bad, and they're like, oh, we're going to kill somebody. They just turn. And instead of killing somebody who would make sense, yeah. they kill the maid. maid. That was yeah. the only thing, too, that 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 death 
I'm like, that actress must have like not been able to come back. No, she's on, a, on one hand, no, she's on the box. All yeah. right, that's the maid on the yeah. box. Yeah. Oh wow. I mean, on one and hand, what a fucking image. Yeah. On, <laughs> I mean, on one hand, it's a movie, and so they're they're like eliminating the character who has not talked. On the second hand, they're they're killing the working class person. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Who's there? And so that does fly in the face of everything no, that they I said. Treat- but- they treat the maid and the cook like a piece of shit. Yeah. yeah. And they didn't even care also about- <laughs> They don't treat the daughters like that. The they cook- give the daughter by comparison, they give the daughters begrudging respect, even if they're mean to them. Yeah, oh, yeah. You, oh, you got, oh, you're cold. Oh, you, you want to get dressed? Okay, well, you, you can, can go, go ahead. change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but also, by the way, though, the other thing, so the, the grand finale is only one of the criminals uh, makes it to the end, and he goes up in a plane- and he looks like he's getting away with it because the family's in there with him. The, the husband is down there, but it's mm-hmm. the wife and the, the sister and the daughter. And the pilots are like, yeah, dude, like, we're your taxi. Where do you want us to go? Blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And they're like, if you want something, there's something to drink in the back. You can have it. And they've obviously drugged it. As the dude is passing out, he just starts shooting at the cockpit. Yeah. Like, he's not probably going to die. They're just probably, like, just drugging him to take him yeah, But he's going to go back to jail. Yeah. Fuck yeah. that shit. No, he's I'm, like, I'm well, his, everybody down. His whole thing is, we're all dead or, or we get away. One, yeah. One way or no, the other. He says that, like, three or four different yeah. times yeah. in the that's movie. His we thesis. don't make it or we don't make it at all. So Nobody as, makes it. That's so his thesis. As he's getting caught, not dying, but as he's getting caught, he just starts shooting at the cockpit. And I'm just like, man. Oh, and it's a tiny airplane it's yes. like you're in a tiny like Cessna style airplane so when he opens fire with what I think is a machine gun yes, right, inside yeah. of that thing everybody who's like in between the pilots and him like all these yeah. girls uh, uh-huh. the, the family are jumping to the side of the plane yeah. to get away from the machine gun it, fire as they have a shootout yeah. inside of the airplane in real life maybe <laughs> a few more people would have got shot absolutely and that- well, as it is Enough people do get shot where it's like it increases the jeopardy. It tightens no, the rope. Yeah, the, the pilots get shot and then mom gets her moment by landing the plane. And I will admit, look, it was great. It was a great setup of tension, but I just wanted that plane on the ground. That's like the moment when my anxiety comes up because I was just like, oh my God, just land it. And like Roger and Quentin were like, you know, this is hard, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like it's, they're, they're, and, and they're handling it realistically. No, they actually... Handle the landing of the plane as realistic. Like, of all the movies, and I've seen a lot of movies where people have to talk somebody who's never flied down <laughs> on the ground. I've never seen it done as realistically as this. Yeah, where there's, there's all a, missed, these other appar- a couple of missed passes. Uh, yeah. A, a yes. failed bouncy land. It uh, was very he was still looking at this, doing a really good job. Okay, okay, let's just do it all over again. Yeah. Let's just start again. Let's do another approach. Yeah. It was very authentic, but I was just ready for it to be over. I was like, and that's like, that was a physical manifestation of being like, Land, <laughs> but that's a and that just shows you the power of a movie that is approximately ninety-four minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk about bang for your buck. There's never a moment in this movie where something isn't happening. Yeah. and then, again, it's all action filmmaking. So yeah. everything is on the run. Yeah. There's never any planning or any talking or setting anything up. It's all on the run. Everything is going on exposition yeah, in real time. Exposition yeah. is on the run. And so there's a whole fabric of things going on at at a certain time. But then at some point, it all settles on the hostage story. But it took a while before it settles on them. By the time it does, now that's what you care about. And now that's where the movie is. Yeah. It's like, like a it's like a criminal version of a mad, 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 mad world in a lot of ways, because you have your own little mini adventures. Yeah, yeah. They're all trying to get to the same mm-hmm. thing. And there's like, you know, alliances and breaks within it. Two of our characters like break apart at one point. 
this is a fantastic movie. A, a real I, this movie could be remade easily. Very yeah. much so. Very much so. You know. I and, mean, you actually had a good pitch for the second film. You had a good pitch for that one. That could be remade, and that one actually really with Tom Hardy as the. Uh, and I think you even said Fox. Yeah, I said Jamie Fox is the Kurt Douglas character, and Tom, Tom Hardy is the pirate. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yul Brenner, yeah, yeah. Okay, Gala. Okay, Jackie. I loved Lisa's friend. Yeah. That's my favorite part of the entire movie. That's your favorite part of the movie? Because I have a story about the movie, and you'll have to understand why that's my favorite part. But I love her just coming in and just being just a total just dumb girl. Just like, la, 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 la. Time to have some champagne. La, 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 This girl never has a problem in her life. From first glance, absolutely. But but also, don't you just like feel the vibe of the room? Like, like read the room. Literally read the room, sis. Nobody is comfortable. Obliviousness has a name. This girl's on her third Mai Tai. It is 11 a.m. What he's saying is the, the rich aren't reading the room of the country. They are. I mean, <laughs> listen. <laughs> also, forget that. Forget reading the room. There's just a certain level of person. Anyone listening to this right now, if you have anyone in your life who would come to your house after you tell them not to come to your house, I guarantee you, you wish that person was not like that. Like, you are not happy that there is a person in your life that decides to do that. And so, by an extension, you do not like that person. Yeah, don't be Lisa's friend. Exactly. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was comedic and fun. I was really excited to see this after Demonoid because (laughs) I love Demonoid. It's like another film in that same genre. It had Stuart Whitman, who I love Stuart Whitman, especially Seven Men From Now. I'm a Mm -hmm. huge fan. Yeah, Bud Butterker fan. So to anyone out there who is looking to watch this movie... It is also known as Under Siege. That's the title you'll mm-hmm. probably find it under. Yeah, I tried to like I tried to do a little research on this, and mm-hmm. I'm like like after trying to read Lighthouse at the End of the World, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I gotta I gotta do a little research on hostages. I only have like three hours before the thing, and I uh, you know I start looking it up. I'm hostages, hostages, just like twenty billion hostages on IMDb. Yeah. Which does not have a functional search. Uh, yeah. There's the Wing Hauser hostage. <laughs> yeah. There's the, the, the I Bruce could Willis not hostage. find it. I started swearing. Fucking Amazon! As I was uh, <laughs> trying to search on it, like, why can't I find it? And then Gala told me as we were driving here, well, you should have asked me. Yeah, it's also called Under Siege. I believe it's the 1980. I believe that's when yeah, this movie uh, yeah, came Yeah, 80 is when I have. So to. this movie is not available for streaming anywhere. Mm-hmm. There is a DVD of it. That shows you how fucking good it is. And that, that is why when I found a video on YouTube of the movie, I was incredibly excited. So excited that I watched a terribly desynced audio copy, um. which the audio was three seconds prior. So anytime anyone would scream, you'd mm-hmm. hear them scream, then they would flail yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> three seconds later. Norwegian subtitles hard-coded in. Oh, wow. So I brushed up on my Norwegian during this movie. <laughs> Unfortunately, I feel like my amazing YouTube version did not live up to the hype that was at this table. I still had a lot of fun watching it, though, despite the issues. I will let you borrow my hostages. Because, well, (laughs) I'm going to thank you for that because I also cannot find the VHS. Mm. This is the first time I've had this issue where I 
am unable to find a VHS copy of this. I'm going to... My beautiful Paragon. I know. Oh, and I'm staring. I'm drooling. <laughs> Cradle it, Quentin. I know. I'm like Curl up with it tonight. Like reaching for it and drooling. <laughs> the rarity of it. The rarity of it. Listen now. Quentin's Paragon home video VHS tape of hostages has never looked so delicious to me right now as I'm staring at it across the table. Like a little slice of cake. Now, by the way, there's another <laughs> title because actually when the movie, and I think it's the Spanish or the Italian yes. title of it. It would say hostages and they're underneath it. Panic makers. Okay, oh. so yeah, panic makers. That's right. Panic yeah. makers. I forgot about maybe, that. Yeah. Maybe I, I need to look up panic makers. But I'm hoping by the time that this comes out, somewhere in the world, this will be available for streaming for everyone to watch. If not, go get the DVD. It sounds really fun. Nice. Now, before we move on, uh, we'll wrap up the show. But before we move on, we have to go back to the tape of hostages again, because this is a Paragon home video. And I'm a big fan of this company. They're a fun, fun company. And... One of the things I like about them is their crazy coming attractions that they have before their movie. And man, this is one of the big ones. Yeah, this yeah. was a this was a great This was a, this a potpourri of magnificent VHS coming attractions. Only one of them, uh Molly and Lawless John, is like a cut-down version of the actual theatrical trailer. Paragon would very rarely ever do normal trailers. They would just Show the logo and then cut to scenes. So the movies that are listed on the Paragon home video are Molly and Lawless John, which is a, a cheap American independent Western done in the 70s with Vera, a slumming Vera Miles and a mustacheless Sam Elliott. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. Very directed by Gene, we noticed that. <laughs> directed by Gene Nelson, who would later go on to direct The Black Hole. Then there's Hot Wire, what looks like a very bad uh, car theft comedy. Directed by a guy named Frank Q. Dobbs. And if that name sounds familiar, that's also the name of the character, of Bogart's character in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Oh, wow. Okay. Then there was the great trailer on the film, Menachem Golan's The Apple. Oh, yeah. His futuristic cult film movie, which as we're watching the trailer is so good, Roger said, why aren't we watching this movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not only that, the song that they play in the trailer, the BIM song, hey, 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 BIM all the way. (laughs) Hey, 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 BIM all the way. BIM all the way. And then that, how that lead glam singer looks like yeah. Garrett Graham yeah. in it looks Phantom like of the Paradise. Graham and the guy from the guy who plays uh, cousin Kevin and yeah. and, and Tommy. And <laughs> the idea of Menachem Golan making like a kind of dystopian 1984 future film yeah. that looks like I don't know Xanadu I was just yeah, or yeah. something. Xanadu. It's, like, yeah. it's amazing. Well, and a LaBelle concert. I can't wait to see this movie. Literally. For 20 minutes at the beginning of Hostages, I just kept hearing the BIM song from the Apple <laughs> playing in my head. I could not get rid of it as if it was playing on a, on a loop. Uh, another film they uh, have a trailer for, but this, this is a wannabe theatrical trailer. This is pretty much the full theatrical trailer of the Cliff Robertson movie, The Pilot, which he also yeah. directed. Uh, it's like his second movie as a director. His first like, movie was a movie like called Zemeckis' J- Flight. Uh, uh, J.W. Coop. And it, it looks like flight, like yeah. down to every yeah. every story point. Really? Yeah. 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 Then, along with the Apple, the best of the uh, trailers was a documentary about funny cars called American Nitro. Which also looked amazing. Which yeah. fucking looked 
rad. Like yeah. I, I don't even like to see drag racing and stuff like that. But I watching that trailer was like, wow, I might be interested in drag racing. Uh, also, <laughs> if, I can, good. if I can track down American Nitro on video. Then that will be our first documentary that we do. That should I, too. Yeah, American Nitro looks fucking badass. Because it also feels like a very like period documentary that like yeah. you either had to catch when it came out on PBS yeah, yeah, or yeah, something yeah. like that, or even worse, like just at your. No, local... it's a documentary meant for drive-ins. But I'm sure it probably got some TV time, don't you think? Uh, so? Not on PBS. <laughs> not on PBS. <laughs> no, sold to Channel Five. Or yeah, something. yeah, it yeah. looked like what Warren <laughs> Miller was to skiing. <laughs> this, this guy is, is to yeah, hot rods. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> like so. but, I mean, talk about fucking killer footage. Man. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. It was yeah. like the footage was just blowing my mind. No, and I mean, definitely looked like some people died in the making of yeah. a, of a lot of those scenes that they shot. The second of the last film is a movie I have actually seen. It's called Ruckus in Maddox County, and it stars uh, Dirk Benedict. Uh, it was Dirk Benedict, Linda Blair, and Ben Starbuck. Johnson. Movie's very interesting. It's a ripoff of First Blood, but it was made before the movie First Blood. How can it be a ripoff? Because it's a ripoff of the book. Mm. So the whole first 20 minutes is pretty much the setup of the book. As a matter of fact, Dirk Benedict at the beginning looks more like Rambo in the book than Stallone's Rambo. The, the way the character's described in the book is he looks like Steve Railsback in Helter Skelter walked into town. Right, right. And that's what Dirk Benedict looks like at the beginning. But then it turns into a rambunctious Southern comedy. It's as though it's a... You know, a wild Jerry Reed, like rambunctious Southern comedy you mean like, version. Like of, Boss Hog and. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> like, wow. Stuff like that. Yeah, it's like a Dukes yeah, of Hazard. Them Duke boys. It's like a Dukes of Hazard <laughs> version of, of, of First Blood at a certain point. And then it ends with after his porno film, Italian Stallion, AKA Party at Kitty and Studs, <laughs> yeah. uh, Stallone's first movie where he's the lead. And it was uh, actually on video, the movie's called Rebel. It's actually not a bad film. The original title was uh, No Place Today, or, or I, I can't remember the I, title. I love how when I asked you, was this shot before or after Italian Stallion? You said, oh, this was shot the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is absolutely the Italian Stallion Stallone, I mean, the, like the very next day. Yeah. And uh, uh, and then actually there's another really interesting um, badass actor named Anthony Page who co-stars with uh, Stallone in the movie. And you know, go back to what we were talking about, Hostages. This is a movie about uh, a political terrorist. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, a you know Stallone gets involved in a bunch of political terrorism. All right, where they're doing they're dropping bombs. It's a total yeah, they're hi- like the weathermen, hippie weathermen. Yeah, wow, uh, kind of a uh, 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 kind of situation. But it's not a bad independent film, and it's a pretty good version of a of a, a New York shoestring underground movie at that time. And Stallone is actually uh, quite affecting in his role. Uh, but but actually, when I saw the film, I saw. Uh, in the 80s and I, I saw the Rebel Home Video. And so I have four of uh, Rebel on uh, Paragon Home Video. I have Molly and Lawless John on Paragon Home Video. I have Hot Wire on Paragon Home Video. And I have uh, uh, Eddie Brown Saturday matinee version of Ruckus. <laughs> Not even called Ruckus in Bad Adam County, just Ruckus. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so let's hand out some awards. Yeah, here. let's hand out some awards. Yes. We'll start with our guest. Uh, I'll make this easy for Jack. All right. So, uh, best film, best director, best screenplay. I mean, it's all wilder. Yeah. It is. <laughs> and, uh, Ed Diamond. And Diamond. Here, 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 here. Yeah, here, here. I'm yeah. with that as well. Okay, so best actor. See, now this is the thing, though. We do have Yul Brenner. Nice, a boring actor. 
Huh? Oh, supporting actor. Supporting actor. Oh, this is for wait, Lita. wait, wait. But his name is just as big as Kirk Douglas's on the box. No, I know that. I know that. <laughs> but, uh, villains are usually in Academy. Villains always get best supporting okay. actor. Uh this is true. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess Stevens. Yeah. Yeah, Robert Stevens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sir Robert Stevens. Yeah, I'll go with Stevens. I mean, I I personally would love to put uh, Blakely and Stevens together, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as as best actors uh, because they're 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 a couple. Mm-hmm. So to I speak. agree, but just yeah, give yeah. it give it to Blakely then for best supporting. All right. Yeah, you know, I will. Okay. I will. Uh, uh, I will say Stevens as well. I will say Stevens. As no, well. I will not give it uh, to Blakely. I will give him best actor along with uh, Stevens because Christopher Lee is going to get my best supporting actor. Okay. 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 Or maybe you just leave Blakely out. I'm going to leave Blakely out. Blakely is- No, uh, hey, sometimes it's about making hard decisions. Sometimes it's about making hard decisions. As Peter Goodchild, the head of the BBC drama said, one of Britain's finest actors who has given some of his best work on television. (laughs) I- This has been, this is because we like Private Life of Sherlock Holmes so much that I think you need to make a hard choice and not just. Well, then it's. We, did, we didn't, we didn't do that for Mikey and Nikki. So I, I, and if ever there was a choice to make fair, two actors. Fair, fair, fair enough. In that case, uh, for his uh, kids who are both actors, Toby Stevens and Chris Larkin, who was in Master and Commander. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to go ahead and do a shout out to their dad, Sir Robert Stevens. As uh, the greatest actor of this week. Right. <laughs> okay, great. There's not much to choose from for best actress, all right? Uh, yeah, uh, so we have Eggers. Yeah, we have Eggers. I, mean, I would say that's more of a supporting actress. True. All right, I don't think we have a best lead actress. Even Marissa Mel, all right, the wife in- uh, um, Hostages. In Hostages is still supporting. Also so supporting. We, yeah. we have no. We have none. Okay, but now comes to the award- that is actually in genuine contention. That actually there is competition. And that is best supporting actor. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say Yul Brenner for me. Yeah, I mean, Yul Brenner is Yul Brenner. He has such power and strength. But Christopher Lee, who would have been cast as Mike Croft, <laughs> even yeah. against uh, Peter O'Toole. Yes. Because he does live up. And would have owned every piece because, of footage he has. Because yes. he doesn't need Watson to inflate him. <laughs> he is Christopher Lee. Quentin, I know he's a monkey, but Mario the monkey wins my vote. <laughs> okay, I'll oh go my okay. God. I'm down with He gave more monkey. than any other actor he gave. He did give. He gave. I am down, I am down with Mario the monkey. I'm it was down. a performance of a lifetime. Man, it's really, really hard. Between Yul Brenner and Christopher Lee. That's really hard. It's a, it's a tough it's one. It's the only hard thing that there is. Yes. Uh, on these awards. This I'm going the... to go with Brenner and I don't think I'm right. <laughs> I think I'm wrong. But I I'm think gonna, I'm, I was but, just but my to... heart, my heart says Brenner, even though my head says Christopher That's Lee. That's exactly Listen, what I was about to say. You know what? Your head Are will, you... your, your brain will lie to you. Your heart will, it may be wrong, but it will never lie to you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I mean, can... it made me a Yul Brenner fan. What the fuck else more can it do? Yeah. And this is what I would say. <laughs> I arguably say that Christopher Lee has the harder performance in a lot of ways to, to pull off mm-hmm. and to add to. And it's, and in, in certain ways, it's more actorly because of what it's got to get done. Mm-hmm. It's a huge exposition dump and he still manages to make it Interesting. That's a tour de force. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 and vibrant. But I just I can't, man. And actually, maybe the the one line that has stayed out that's not a, a plot line. Oh, I'm sorry. 
is the greatest brain in England? Am I going too fast for you? Yes, exactly. Yeah, very true. I can see you saying that one. Yeah, yeah. very true. Yeah, he just did. Just he would convert the England part to LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best supporting actress. Well, um, I'm going to say Samantha Egger because yeah. uh, I have in these weeks become such a big Samantha Eggers fan. And plus, she's making the choice to uh, be in this movie where her character is thanklessly gang raped and killed in the end. <laughs> and, you know, she's a good sport about it. Yeah, and she's a good sport. <laughs> like, that is who Samantha Eggers is. Like, she's the actress who will go ahead and say, yeah, I'll do that. I mean, Hats off to her. I love I'm her. I'm okay if I'm wrong with it, but I really. You no, you really like the Dalton. No, I Jackie, did. I saw, you and I had the same idea because you grabbed the box before I could to grab her name. <laughs> yeah, so. and it's not on there. It's not on there. Yeah. Genevieve Page. Genevieve, Genevieve Page. Page. Yeah. Genevieve, Genevieve Page. Page. Yeah. I'm with her. Yeah, I like her. She give not only that. Like, don't get me wrong. I I, I do think Samantha Eggers does a, a very good, incredible job with this. But I believe that she beguiled the great Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, you're changing my mind. And and, and, and as much as I love Smith, and, and I'm thinking are. that the gravitas of the ending of the movie that we all arguably love a lot comes a lot from our ability to believe whether or not she could beguile. The, the fact yeah. that in the end, even though he, it's not like he's capable of of loving the fairer gender, yes, <laughs> but he in the end. Absolutely adores her as his equal. Yes, in the every way. That she it's was lovely. Able to it's get a beautiful, beautiful okay. moment. Okay, here I will make my big, gigantic point, <laughs> and it is this: it is absolutely Samantha Eggers. All right, that wins for best supporting actress. And the reason we're talking about all this is because as Samantha Eggers played that role in Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, it was she would absolutely. Oh, she would be exactly what I think is missing. From the Actually, movie. You know she what? would bring the star shine that the movie is missing. Okay, I'm going to go with that. Wait, yeah, wait, I, 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 wait, I love her. Yeah, but Quentin, go with that. she didn't. <laughs> but I, I know. Using Quentin's, but you, but using Quentin's logic. No. No, my logic is she lacked oomph. And the three leads act oomph, except for Colin Blakely. And exactly what they're lacking is what Samantha Eggers has. If she played the Belgian spy, bam. Against Peter O'Toole. <laughs> no, wait, even again. In Quentin's well, no, movie. Uh, no, I actually think, you know, Robert Stevens could have benefited from her starshine. I, I will agree with that, of course. And you, I know, agree, you know I'll agree with that. In a universe that. where she did play that role, I would give it to her. Mm. But she didn't. So I I'm, but I'm simply saying, no, but I'm simply saying, though, but she's a perfect illustration of my description of what I thought was deficient in the yes, trailer. And I don't disagree <laughs> with you on some of your deficiencies, but I would say in spite of the deficiencies, I was still impressed and genuinely entertained by what she Oh, no, did. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just, well, we're just talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, no, but actually, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, mm-hmm. I do think that there is an element to her performance which is lacking that could have added depth to it and definitely added something more to the entertainment value of mm-hmm. those three performances. Yeah, yeah. That being said, I'm still, she's still my girl. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. still riding it. And also, I think she switches between accents flawlessly, yes. if we're being honest. Yes. I and think she does a great job. She's having to do multiple characters. Yeah. And she's having to do a character pretending to be another character. And I think she does yeah. an, a convincing job of it. Yeah. I like that. And it's also beautiful to look at in her yeah. many and beautiful And you never outfits. know. She could have been trying to act up against somebody that was 
literally cracking up next to her. So yeah. who knows what she was dealing with? No, like, she like, could have been causing the crack up. I mean, legitimately. Legitimately, though. Like, I think Robert Stevens was like, oh my God, why isn't my wife playing this fucking uh, role? Okay. <laughs> that, might have been a pro- that could potentially, we don't know, that could yeah, potentially yeah. have been an issue, a bone of contention that mm-hmm. was yeah. causing problems. We don't know. <laughs> Best cinematography, Christopher Chalice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Or yes. Private uh, Life and, 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 and I would say absolutely best uh, production design. design. Yeah, yeah. And, and absolutely best, best production design. And, uh, and I'm just going to say best all-around cruelty I'm going to give to Led at the end of the world. Edge of the world. I feel... I feel bad that hostages didn't win anything. Oh, hostages absolutely. Best action. Like, well, no, no, it, it, host- like, it, it's one. Of, it's one of our admiration. No, it has my special mention mm-hmm. for the movie that made me the most anxious. Yeah, right on. Right. <laughs> literally, on. it literally like if there's an edge of the seat award, it went to that one. Let's most, give it most actually, realistic plane. Let's uh, give the edge of the seat award. I would say actually best use of zoom. And handheld yeah, hostages. For sure. Yeah. Bam. Major? Full on. They're doing a ton of work with the yeah. zoom and the handheld. And they're just catching it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually another thing that we haven't mentioned about hostages. The action in the movie doesn't seem that choreographed. But it doesn't have the nothing makes sense mm-hmm. of just chaos. Yeah. All right. It manages to have a, a slight movie cool quality but there is a chaotic aspect that it is being captured by documentary footage those, yeah. those by, by newscaster yeah, footage no, it feels like uh seven ups or something the, yeah, yeah. when those car crashes happen and suddenly like a car i don't know goes into the water or something it looks like it hurts yeah yeah, yeah. it looks like oh, that no, car hit it at doesn't a, have, it doesn't have a it looks like they, style okay this is how the crash is going to work no it just looks like fucking chaos it's like they didn't know what was going to happen yeah. to the car yeah. when hey they did sergio it. drive that car into the lake what's <laughs> so interesting is you know that a movie like this is absolutely what robert was thinking about when he did el mariachi and then seeing what he was able to do yeah, yeah, uh-huh. with his first film uh-huh. with less resources mm-hmm. he's literally like cribbing so much of the like natural shot technique you mm-hmm. might not even have to crib it might just be the natural mexican yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> state of being in the dna to- of the yeah. filmmaking yes. yeah but either way it's so the machismo. Um, yeah but it's it, the but machismo it, but, it's, yeah. but it's so interesting looking at it it's like when you see something that inspired something that you saw in the reverse order like that i love that billy wilder is a master and this is probably his last truly masterful film Altogether, yeah. That uh, uh, that he did, and it's a magnificent encore as far as that's concerned. Just classy in every way, but also just equally funny as any of his comedies, you know, but in a different way. Yeah. And just in a gentler way. But also, I'm a big fan of Rene Cardona Jr., and I think uh, introducing him to you guys, I think I picked a good one. I think he leaves this round with a lot of respect. Absolutely. I, I agree. And that's it for the end of the night. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week. Remember... Be kind, rewind. And thank you for Jackie for coming. Thank y'all for having me. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muallam. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod.
Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 